Um, I think historically, as you look back through the topics that have been discussed at these conferences, they focused mostly on plants and crops and people and uh, food production in that realm, uh, not only in Nebraska, the United States, uh, and internationally as well. Last year, uh, we had one speaker, one of the keynote speakers, Malin Falkenmark, um, who talked. And during her talk, she uh, had, I think, one or two slides that talked about um, the effects of livestock and animal production uh, on water uh, consumption, water use, and some of her slides um, seem to indicate that uh, animal, uh, the amount of animal protein in the diet, human diet, needed to be reduced to, uh, to save water uh, for other uses. And that, as you might imagine, in a state like Nebraska, where, commercial, where Nebraska ranks number one in commercial red meat production in the United States, caused a bit of controversy and a bit of discussion uh, in the state. So as sort of a result of that talk last year, um, Mats, our first speaker, um, helped us organize a session at this meeting that will look at um, the effects of livestock and water use, not only in the United States, uh, but throughout the world. So our first speaker today is Mats Lannerstad. He currently serves as research fellow at the Stockholm Environment Institute in Sweden, and he also is a scientist with the International Livestock Research Institute, or ILRI, in Kenya. Uh, Mats holds a doctorate in water and environmental studies from Linköping University in Sweden, and a master's degree in environmental engineering and sustainable infrastructure from the Royal Institute of Technology. And he's going to be our lead-off speaker. His slides aren't up yet, but I'm sure they'll, they'll pull the title of his slide up. Mats? So, we live on a blue planet, and this is the World Conference. Uh, so, but it's not only blue, it's also green. And that's because we have a lot of biomass on it, and naturally we have a lot of animals eating that biomass. And during the last couple of thousand years, we have domesticated a number of these animals, and we use it for producing livestock products. Actually, the, is it coming, or? There we are. So, <clears throat> If you look upon the globe, the livestock sector is a massive resource user. The pastures and the one-third of the croplands is um, used to, to produce feed for the livestock sector. So in total, it's about 30% of the global ice-free land surface. And recently, this impact on natural resources have been highlighted in this book, The Livestock's Long Shadow from FAO, and that sort of have propelled a lot of discussion about environmental impact from livestock production. And it's also <clears throat> very much in focus by the climate change community. For example, Lord Stern says, give up meat to save the planet. At this conference, we talk about water scarcity in food security. And of course, livestock is one part of the food production system globally using this water. However, can we really keep on saying that everything is bad with livestock? Is there only one answer? And if we talk about water and livestock, is this the answer to, to approach uh, the water use in the livestock sector? So my name is Mats Landerstad, and I will start and give an overview of the livestock sector globally, 
And I will also talk about livestock and water and uh, sort of use the approach that we use in our studies, the blue, green, and green continuum. So starting with the global importance of the livestock sector. 40% uh, of the global value from agriculture is from the livestock sector. 20% of the world population, mainly smallholder, are smallholder livestock keepers, and the extreme poor, almost one billion of them, depend upon livestock. And from the sector we get food, like meat, milk, and eggs, but particularly in the developing world, it's also very important with the non-food benefits, like manure, it's also important here, of course, but hides drought power. Many people in the developing world use the, capital as, uh, the cattle as capital savings. Or during uh, disasters, it can work as a risk assurance by selling a few of the animals. If we put it in the global food supply perspective, 16% of the calories come from the livestock sector, 33% of the proteins, and 43% of the fat comes from the livestock sector. So it's really important, particularly if we think about the protein. However, the livestock sector has, it sort of ranges between two extremes. So there is a dichotomy of the livestock sector. So on one hand, like in the US or Europe, it's a, it's a subsidized industry, but for many it is the livelihood for the smallholders. It is production based upon traditional, traditional varieties, or we have these extremely modern varieties. It is small scale and low tech, or it's extremely high tech and large scale. And for example, if we, another example, look at the biodiversity. If in the first case, we look upon, for example, Brazil, if we have rainforest, we have a high biodiversity. If we go for soy crop cultivation, it's low. But if we take a Swedish meadow by the Baltic Sea, which has had cattle grazing for thousands of years, it has developed a, a massive biodiversity. But if we take away the cattle and put in a pine forest, we lose the biodiversity. So livestock can be good for biodiversity, it can be bad for biodiversity. What people talk about now is the livestock revolution. So we had the green revolution, and now we go into the livestock revolution. And that's mainly driven by demand in the developing world. And that's demand for food or animal origin. So there are three main drivers behind the livestock revolution. It is, of course, more people. We expect another 2.3 billion up to 2050. But even more people will uh, go into the urban area. So three billion will live more th three more three billion more people will live in urban areas. So we have more people. Of course, they need to eat more. But if you live in the urban areas, you also change your food habits, and you move from from depending on the food from the local market or your farm to instead be a consumer on the national or international market. And then there's another important driver, it's the rising affluence in the developing countries. As we can see, when the per capita income increases, we have a rapid increase in consumption of animal sourced foods. Here is meat. And then it flattens out. Of course, US is an extreme also here. <laughs> uh, not flattening out that much. Anyway, and 
So if we look, here we still continue with this dichotomy of animal foods. If we look globally, we can see what has been the trends from 1960 to 2010, what are the projections for the future. And the blue line is the developed world, and the red line, the red line is developing countries. And the green is the average. And of course, since we are so few in the developed world, the average is very close to what it's like in the developing world. We can see that here we have, um, uh, on average, uh, a per capita consumption of 100 kilos of meat per person, while it is in the uh, developing world is only 30. So although there's going to be a, a, the increase in in developing world will be 50%, and here it will just be maybe 10% at maximum. And the same for milk here, we can see it's, it's actually increasing a lot as well. There is also a restructuring or a shift in the livestock production globally. So up to 1980, bovine meat was dominating, that is beef. And now we're in the pig or pork era, where the majority of the meat consumed is from pigs. But we soon come in 2020 to the poultry area. And this also reflects the, um, the shift in production systems, the shift in feeds, going from more land-based systems to industrial monogastric systems. And this is one example of how, how it plays out. This is the soy production. And for animals, you use the cake. So you can see it has increased dramatically from 1960 up to 2010, and the increase is projected to increase to continue. So, to give an example of how this restructuring often leads to a concentrated livestock production, I use this example, which I have snitched from Hal Mooney. And we have, in 2009, we had about one million pigs in the world. And we have three major centers of pork production, China, Europe, and the US. So if we zoom in on the US, 65 million pigs are in the US. But it's not all over the US. It's in two, two uh, main areas. It's like east of Nebraska here, and then it's in uh, North Carolina. But if we zoom in on North Carolina, it's also not spread over North Carolina. It's mainly in the southern coastal district. But it's also not in the district. It's in three counties. So five million pigs are found in only three counties. That is, 0.5% of all pigs in the world walk around in these three counties. That's every 200 pig. So this is an example of the concentration of production. What does it lead to? So here we have a feedlot system with cattle in front of the Rocky Mountains. But it's not the Rocky Mountains because they are steaming. It is manure piles. So this is how we lose the link to the land. And we have sort of, this is not sustainable. So looking into the future, we need to develop sustainable intensification methods to improve efficiency to produce more food, in this case livestock, using, uh, without using more land, water, or other inputs. That is, sustainable intensification is to produce more with less. 
And when we think about livestock production, we have to think about these systems where the production uh, is done. And we have may, three main systems. We have the grazing systems, uh, largely depending on or connected to, to direct land use. Almost all or most, uh, all or most all of the feed comes from biomass that the animals themselves graze. Then we have the mixed systems, the uh, crop, livestock, uh, mixed systems. So, <clears throat> and also so often um, some grazing there, but the main thing is that you use the crop residues to feed the animals, so you can benefit from both having uh, the cereal production uh, to sell and to sell the livestock products. And then we have the industrial systems, for example, uh, um, pork and chicken. And then we have some systems are rain-fed, some systems are irrigated, we have small holders and large holders. If we look upon the table at the bottom, we can see that, uh, for example, the pork, oh sorry, the beef, and the beef is mainly in the, uh, we find in the mixed, uh, pork are industrial or mixed, we have poultry mainly in the industrial and the same for eggs, while almost all the dairy comes from mixed systems. So moving on to water, we have to connect water to the feed used, and that is connected to the system. So the main thing is to look upon ruminants separately from monogastrics. So ruminants uh, can then digest cellulosic uh, fibrous feed, while monogastric animals depend upon grains mainly. So on the ruminant side, we can go from the rangeland system to the mixed system to a more industrial system, while on the, on the monogastric side, we go from smallholder to industrial. And the main thing is here that uh, here, the ruminants can then use the, grain, the rangelands or cultivated roughage, and to some extent they use uh, grains, while the monogastrics, this again, only use the grain. So, going further to look in the water situation, uh, a lot of uh, people still think about the water that we can pump or uh, divert with infrastructure, and one such water use is drinking water or service water to the livestock industry. But from a water resource perspective, I come from a water resource perspective, it is totally insignificant. It is instead the water used in crop production. And um, we talk about, from a management perspective, to understand which water resources that are used in, in the cultivation of feed. We talk about blue water, that is, so the water that uh, evapotranspired from irrigation, the water that we can divert or pump from rivers or aquifers. And then we talk about the green water, which is the water resource already fed into the land from the rain. So many times when you irrigate, you already have sort of the green water and you maximize the use of the green water by adding some blue water, that is irrigation. Some systems only have blue water, like in Egypt, but most places are only have irrigation as a supplement to the green. And in our study, we separate green water from croplands and green water from pastures. So it's in the feed production we have the water use. So from our study, 
we've reached the conclusion that uh, livestock water must be analyzed from this blue-green-green perspective. We strongly think that any summarized values, like we could see for the stake in the beginning, is totally misleading. And we think that our large scope to improve livestock water productivity without using more water. There is, there is scope for sustainable uh, intensification. And I will now show that in a number of slides. And most of this work is based upon a paper uh, that we have in review now for a special issue on livestock and global change. And Jens Heinke and myself, we have been the main authors of this. And then we have a big group, and it's a cooperation between ILRI, uh, PIC, SEI, EASA, and Stockholm Resilience Center. So, to see how much, or sort of, when we add up, we can get a picture of the global consumptive water use for, uh, we have to look at the entire agricultural sector, and then we, we will zoom in on the livestock. So we have the water use on croplands amounts to about 7,000, and from the pastures is almost 11,000 cubic kilometers. And again, we have the green water resources used and the blue water. Uh, but, so I can say that this one is where you have normal food crops, and here we have the, the crops used for livestock. And when we zoom in, the livestock, of course, then appropriates the feed crops and the roughage, sort of like alfalfa grown on cropland, and then the biomass uh, grazed on the uh, pastures or rangelands. So we lift out this block. So this is the, the water resource used then. We have the feed crops, the roughage, and grazed biomass. So looking at it, we can see that the total consumptive water use for the livestock sector is close to 7,000 uh, cubic kilometers. But if we divide it, the pasture green here is 74%. The cropland green is 23, altogether making 97%. And the blue is only that irrigation water and the global summarized picture is only 3%. So the focus must be how to use all of this water, not just the blue. We can also produce global medians of how much, we talk about water productivity, that is how much uh, grams are produced per cubic meter. And we use proteins as the currency to compare. Because, for example, if we compare in kilos, we have milk has a lot of water, while meat is very uh, energy dense. So it's, it's, uh, to convert it all to proteins, we can see what is the, the productivity. It could also be done into calories, but since it's uh, mainly for proteins, we use livestock. That's the currency we use. So we can look here now and see that the global medians, for example, for laying hens, you can get 30 grams of protein per cubic meter of consumptive water use. And then we have uh, cattles for, uh, or buffaloes for dairy. And this is, we use a herd approach, which means the, animal, the whole group of animals produce both milk and meat, but summarized, uh, you get about uh, 20 grams of protein per cubic meter, and so forth. It goes down to sheep and goats, uh, only producing meat has the lowest global medians. But this is like coming back to the steak picture. We give a, uh, if you look at this, oh, you should, should only eat egg and you shouldn't eat bovine meat. But we don't know what's behind these numbers. So we have to look into that. And now we have this 
quite complex figure, uh, which shows here again we have uh, all the water, the consumptive water is at the bottom here. It's divided for the monogastrics and for ruminants. And we can see the monogastrics only rely on blue water and green water on cropland because they, they depend on uh, feed grains, while the ruminants have a mix of water from cropland, blue and green, and the green from pastures. And then we have sliced it up to get this gradient with less blue for the ruminants, uh, for monogastrics, that's pig and chicken, and here for the cattle and uh, uh, small ruminants. We have an increasing share of pasture green. With this figure, we can also get, the, again, the water productivity. That's gram protein per cubic meter. Uh, what we can see here is also the, the products from the monogastrics. We see that they produce egg and meat. And on this side, they produce meat and milk. So these bars can show that there's enormous variability. And you can't uh, uh, reach the conclusion that, okay, monogastrics are always more efficient than ruminants because we have also high pillars here. It's a completely diverse picture and what we can see, but there's a pattern that is clear here. There's no <clears throat> pattern for the monogastrics, but for the ruminants we have a pattern that with increasing pasture green, we have a sloping water productivity. So in relation to total water use in ruminants, the productivity falls when you increase the pasture green. So if we compare the monogastrics with the ruminants and look at total production, we can see that globally, and this is for year 2000, 25 million tons of proteins are produced by monogastrics. And 29 million tons of proteins produced from the ruminants. And if we look at, like the first, the steak picture gave the total consent would use for a steak. And if we do the comparison here and look at how much water they use, to the production that you get out of it, the monogastrics, and here we have, so we have 1,000 here and about 6,000 here, uh, and then they produce a little bit different. So the uh, monogastrics are, if you look at the total water, they are much more efficient, five times more efficient. So you should say, oh, don't eat anything from ruminants. Instead, just go for the monogastric. But if we instead look at the cropland water, which is the water we compete for to produce food, the water we can compete for to, to produce biofuels, and who's most efficient here? If we look upon the total global sector, we can see that the, the ruminants, they are one and a half times more efficient than the monogastrics. So there's a, a, you can view this from different ways. Then we have repacked the whole world into this figure, which is quite complex, but which shows again, uh, we have three sets of uh, how we have packed it. So we have the monogastric, it's just one pillar. This is the global uh, median for all monogastric production in proteins per cubic meter. And here we have the range of mixed water use by ruminants. And on this side, we have ruminants only using pasture green, so this is only dark green. So if we just look upon the cropland water that I talked before, and the water we compete for, we can see that, again, that uh, um, 
So this could also be totally yellow because the monogastrics only use this. Uh, their total use is only uh, cropland water. So we can compare this to this gradient of yellow of monogastrics. We can so here again, we see that monogastrics are quite efficient when you mix the cropland water with the pasture green. And at the same time, if we look overall, we come back to this, that monogastrics are more efficient than ruminants if you look upon the total water resource, which is this dark red. It's much lower than this one. An interesting thing is here is that looking at the, the total water use and livestock water productivity of that, for in this segment here, when you slowly increase the amount of cropland water in the mix, you see that the total, uh, total livestock water productivity goes up. So there is a, um, um, to increase the water productivity, if you add grains to the, to the feed of ruminants, you can see that, that it has a twofold effect. You have more nutritional feed when you give grains, so there's more input per cubic meter in the feed. At the same time, as, as when the animals get this better feed, they can better use the uh, cellulosic feed, so the, it all increases. I know this is quite complex, but it's just to show that we have looked at it carefully and we see different trends. <laughs> so, to do, move over to more um, easily accessible view, uh, how can we improve livestock water productivity? So, first thing is, of course, if we grow the feed more efficient, the water for the feed, we can, uh, we sort of use less water for the feed we use, give to the animals. So, we should look at that for the feeds, the consumption we use on the field for the fields. But there's another way to, to increase the livestock water productivity, that is, if we increase the share of feeds that are not assigned any water, for example, crop residues, stover, and like that, then, because that's like, um, normally we assign the water to the cereals from the field and the crop residues are not given in water. So if we just use that efficiently, which is uh, very much done, for example, in, in um, dairy production in Bangladesh or India, they don't give them real feed, but they, they really take care of the stover and feed that to the animals then they use the water they have more efficiently. Another thing is the conversion efficiency. We can say that if we have in monogastrics, we can move from one monogastric animal to a more, water, uh, more um, conversion efficient animal in the monogastric production. For example, if we move from, generally, from a, from a pig to chicken, we increase the conversion efficiency, but we can also have, like, uh, a modern pig is better than an old-fashioned chicken. So it's, it's not so simple to say that, <laughs> that the animals are... Uh, it follows a, s a straight system. So, so, and then the same thing with ruminants. You can move from... Um, the basic thing is to move from, from meat production to dairy production, which is more efficient. And then we can, of course, mix the animal types. We can go from... from um, depending on the kind of feed mix or what use we have, we can move from monogastric to ruminants, or if it's very efficient ruminant production, we can go back to the monogastrics. And then, what really decides also is the feed mix nutritional value. So, for example, if you add feed crops to ruminants, you get a better output. And what we see globally, if you use the cropland water to cultivate 
alfalfa on cropland, it's, we think that's a, a waste of this valuable water. You should instead have the cattle to graze and then you give them real feed crops. And of course, you can also manage the grasslands, which we will have a lecture about later, how to do that more efficiently, and then you get more biomass out of the uh, pastures, then you can just add some crops to get more out of that. So it's, it's, uh, the pastures are not static. You can get more out of those. And to see here that it is in the ruminants sector that we really have the options to combine different water resources. The monogastric are more static. Here we can combine the pasture, the cultivated roughage, the crops, all sorts of combinations. However, this approach we use with these three water resources, if we zoom in to use it locally, we have to look how does this competition play out with other water uses, if there's water scarcity, which Brad will talk about later on. And uh, we also have to look upon other environmental trade-offs, because often we have like a single focus, so like the greenhouse gas people, they just talk about greenhouse gases, and they don't think about how it impacts water. And if we do the same from the water side, and just say, it's just water productivity, we don't care about greenhouse gases, nutrients, anything, we have to, to widen our focus like that. And especially in the developing world, we have to think about all the non-food benefits, not just look about the, the food we get it, because they, they use the cattle, for example, in Ethiopia, they have enormous cattle herds, just to store their wealth. So if you look upon the water productivity, the animals live forever and you don't get anything from them. And, of course, you cannot also do this system optimization if the consumers won't eat what you produce. For example, not everyone eats pork and not everyone eats beef. So to come back to the stake in the beginning, which is actually the water footprint view. And uh, when you do the water footprint, which is the global, like, general view how to look upon uh, products, especially uh, meat, we get this number at the bottom, the summarized number, which is this orange little thing here. And then the methodology is to combine the consumptive water use from uh, blue water and the, the summarized consumptive water use from both cropland and pastures. And then you add on to that a gray water quality number. That they call it the gray water. It's the quality of the water. How, much, uh, how big water volumes will be needed to dilute the, the pollu pollution from a production? So you get this number that could be like 100,000 or something per kilo, but you don't know what's in it. Instead, we want this to be looked upon these three water resources, the blue water, how, and if we look upon the hydrology environment, if we use this water, what, what happens downstream? It is the liquid water in the landscape. We see how it plays out over the landscape. If we go, go look at the, how the hydrology changes when we do use cropland water, it is changing. For example, we remove a forest, and instead we put crops, and then we change the... Uh, water partitioning in this field. It could be that earlier we had a bigger transpiration, less runoff, and then we replaced by crops. It could be the opposite, more runoff, less transpiration, things like that. It's totally different how it play out. And then on pastures, it's similar to the cropland, but still different. And then if we look, what is the competition for the resource? 
we have to look, so the blue water is the water we use for drinking water, municipal use, all sorts of uses and environmental flow, but the <coughs> green cropland, from a livestock perspective, is, that's competing with food production or biofuels. And the green pasture, if we, if we for example, look in a, in, a, in a Kenyan perspective, if we move in with the livestock, we have to push out some other animals using this biomass. So it's a wildlife like using this biomass that uses the water. So there's a trade-off in different ways. And then we can combine these water resources. If we irrigate, we better use the green water on the cropland, but the pasture green is separate. But the, the cropland waters can be combined in an efficient way. And then, as I've shown here, we can also combine the feed in different ways. Then we combine all three water resources. So we think this is the way to look upon water and livestock. And the final conclusion is then, we think this blue-green-green green is a way to consistent represent the use, the management options, and environmental impacts. And as we've seen, the great variability, the different combinations, and the shifts makes it possible to increase water productivity. And we see much more bright future than the pessimistic stake I showed in the beginning. Yeah, okay. Are there any questions for Mark before you want to speak I guess I was, oh, go ahead. Archie Clutter, University of Nebraska. I really applaud your approach to understanding the complex system. I wondered, is there any um, risk of confounding with genetic potential, for example, across the ruminants where the genetic potential in in the mix, blue-green systems could be superior to that in the more purely grazing systems. And then just a, just a comment, um, and you may have made this point and I missed it, but I, I also appreciate your um, comments about using the, re the crop residue, but I um, uh, would just comment that we need to take care to model the effect of that on maintaining moisture in the soil as well as was mentioned during the week previously. I will first comment on this uh, crop residue, which I think is really, really a key thing. For example, in uh, Southern Africa, they use the crop residue so efficiently that they undermine the, the maintenance of the organic material in the, in the soil and they lose the, the, they cannot then use, then when it rains, the soil moisture doesn't stay, that is the green water resource, so they undermine the green water resource in the, in the land, so they, they get less crops. So this is, of course, very important to, to think about, so you cannot just use it without thinking about it. But, um, but the stover you can use, because that's when you put the grain to the milling industry, you get these leftovers. Uh, I didn't really catch the genetic uh, dimension. We can talk about that later, yeah. So our second speaker is Dr. Brad Rideau. He is Principal Research Scientist at the Commonwealth Science, Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, otherwise known as CSIRO, in Australia. Welcome, Brad. 
Well, thank you so uh, much, Deb, and it's great to be uh, here with you uh, today. Uh, as mentioned, I come from Australia, the CSIRO, which is the National uh, Science uh, Agency, and I'm a part of a, uh, a large uh, research initiative oriented towards uh, sustainable agriculture in, that in this country. So I'm here to bring you the LCA, or Life Cycle Assessment Perspective. At one level, we're using uh, LCA to help our agricultural uh, industries in Australia to understand where their environmental impacts are and how they can uh, employ strategic initiatives to reduce their environmental impacts. Of course, there's an ever-increasing um, awareness by stakeholders of the environmental impacts of food production and need not only to keep uh, continually improving, but also uh, to become increasingly transparent in reporting and communicating those uh, environmental impacts. But on another level as well, and, uh, and I guess this is where I share a lot of uh, interest in Matt's work, we're interested in using life cycle assessment to help understand uh, what is the role, what is the shape the size, the form of, of a livestock uh, sector in a sustainable global food system. Of course, there's folk out there, you've probably heard them, uh, suggesting that you know, we need to move away from livestock products, that uh, they have uh, little or no role in a, in a food system that needs to uh, meet the needs of, of, of a world population increasing towards 9 billion people. I don't agree with that at all, but uh, you, there must be some upper limits to the size of the, and the shape of the livestock uh, sector. Um, the, the, there is only so many uh, animals that we can, uh, that we can sustainably um, raise. Um, but the question is, where in between? And I think this is an area where life cycle assessment, it's not the only uh, tool or method of analysis, of course, but it's one uh, uh, approach which can help us to understand, and as we saw from Matt's presentation, there is a lot of complexity, help us to understand what is uh, the role of livestock products, of different kinds of livestock production systems in a sustainable food system. So recognising that um, not everyone's probably familiar with life cycle assessment, I've got a couple of slides just to give a, a little bit of background there. It, it's not new. It's been around for decades, and indeed it's, it, it's regarded as, as the internationally accepted science-based method for assessing the environmental performance of products and services. Of course, its application into the uh, land-based production systems, biofuels and, and agriculture, has really ramped up in, 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 in recent years. Um, because they are major areas where humanity has an impact on the environment in those land-based production systems. Um, but, but going back further, it, it's, its track record, its history has been uh, more related to industrial products. So its application into agriculture is still developing to some extent. But what's at the heart of life cycle assessment is, is that we want to avoid the situation where we just try and improve one thing. We take a narrow view and inadvertently we make something else worse off. I often refer to people, I don't know how popular they are these days, but waterbeds. The earth is like a waterbed. We try and push something down here, something else very often pushes up over there. And um, this is really what the 
goal and purpose of life cycle assessments is about. It's about avoiding shifting burdens up or down the supply chain. I mean, to give an example with, uh, with biofuels. I mean, if we're putting a, a, a biofuel into our vehicle, we may be reducing tailpipe emissions. But if the origin of those uh, biofuels in the supply chain, there's uh, land use change in South, uh, Southeast Asia. I know that's not the case here with your ethanol. Uh, but if that's in the supply chain, we may be just trading off reduced tailpipe emissions for land use change emissions somewhere else. Perhaps somewhere else we don't even see or think about unless we start to take this life cycle perspective. The other aspect is trading off from one kind of impact uh, to another. And so, um, well, maybe there's, a, there's an example with your... Um, your ethanol, I don't know, I haven't studied it, um, but if we're reducing greenhouse gas emissions but increasing water use impacts, um, well, um, we need to assess that up uh, carefully or else we might, uh, might uh, make some unwise uh, decisions and go in, in unhelpful directions. So it's a, it's a methodology which is, it's, it's all about making decisions, informing decisions. It's supposed to be uh, practical, but has a very, uh, it's rooted in, in deep science. Actually, in working in life cycle assessment, you often get it from both sides. You often have people who say, oh, your models are far too simple. Um, because when you're trying to model things in many places, in up and down the supply chain, often you've got to make some simplifications. But then on the other hand, people look at you and they say, oh, your modelling's far too complex. We can't understand it. There's too many different aspects to it. So somewhere we're trying to fit in the middle and provide helpful uh, strategic decision-oriented information. And here again, for at the heart of life cycle assessment is a desire to try and avoid shifting burdens around from one type of impact to another. When we look at land-based production systems, often the emphasis is on greenhouse gas emissions, water use impacts, land use impacts. And you can see how easily they can um, trade off from one to another. Of course, if we're irrigating, we're going to be increasing our water use, we're potentially increasing our water use environmental impacts. But at the same time, we can produce a lot more food on irrigated land than non-irrigated land. And so we're potentially sparing land, more land use efficient. Benefits there because habitat loss, biodiversity loss is a major global concern as well. And one of the major drivers of terrestrial biodiversity loss is land use change, obviously. Water use and greenhouse gas emissions. Obviously, it takes water actually to produce electricity. It takes electricity to pump water or to recycle water. In a livestock production system, one of the ways of reducing your greenhouse gas emissions is to improve the diet that the animals are receiving so that they grow faster, they reach their market uh, weight or size earlier. Well, the, the, one of the obvious ways of doing that is to improve the diet. That may involve more irrigation of pastures or, or the use of crop products, which may have irrigation in them as well. This is a little bit complex, but I'm really just trying to give you the bigger picture of LCA. We start off on, on the left-hand side there. You see what we call elementary flows. This is things coming from nature, things going to nature. And then we try and model. This isn't just about resource use efficiency, nutrient use efficiency, water use efficiency. No, we're trying to understand environmental impact pathways. So in the, in, in the, the highest one there, uh, climate change. You Probably you are all well and familiar with carbon footprints, so the global warming potential. That's one step, we call it a midpoint, a midway along the environmental uh, 
uh, chain and effect, a cause and effect chain. But obviously, in an LCA perspective, we, we want to try and integrate these various types of in, uh, impacts together. We focus on these so-called areas of protection of human health, natural resources, and the environment. So in the case of, 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 of global warming, that now way of thinking is not, is not the end. We're concerned about global warming because its potential impacts on human health uh, through heat stress, through diseases, and on the natural environment through uh, species loss, through, ha uh, through habitats becoming uh, no longer suitable. And zeroing in on, on water, it's important to, to, to point out, there's people talking a lot nowadays about water footprints and when people are talking about water footprints, they may be meaning all sorts of different things. There's many different ways of calculating water footprints and they, they are quite uh, different conceptually. Um, what I point out here is that there's actually an international standard uh, for water footprint that's well under the w uh, underway towards being developed. It's actually at the, pro at the step now of being a draft international standard, one step away from being a fully uh, published international standard. If you know anything about international standards, they are a multi-year, um, uh, multi-party consensual process um, that takes some time to develop going through various uh, stages in the process. So this is a, actually at a very late stage of development. What I want to point out here is that this kind of water footprinting is based on LCA. And the water footprints that I'll be talking about in the next few minutes are all based uh, on uh, LCA. So I want to uh, talk about some uh, applications relating to uh, livestock production, uh, in particular beef cattle. Uh, where we've done some, um, uh, some quite detailed case studies. And I want to refer to these six different uh, beef cattle uh, production systems in Australia. They're all uh, mixed uh, livestock cropping uh, farming systems. Um, and they were chosen to be representative of um, a wide range of different variables. So the systems, I won't talk so much about um, the details of the system, other than uh, to say these systems are in uh, many different uh, environments. Uh, WSI refers to water stress index. It's one way of, of uh, characterising the water stress in the locations where these uh, beef cattle production systems are operating. Um, for this purpose, we use a, a water stress index that looks uh, something like this, where the areas in darker blue are areas of higher water stress, the areas in, 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 in uh, green, more moderate water stress, and yellow areas that uh, effectively have little or, or no water stress. This particular water stress index is very well uh, designed for, for application in LCA. Uh, so these systems, uh, they, they vary from cases where the water stress is very high there, 0.8, uh, to areas where water stress is effectively uh, very uh, low, uh, at the lowest end of the scale. The scale runs from 0.001 to 1. Uh, some of these systems uh, uh, where, the uh, uh, where the cattle are, are born and raised to a market size on the same property. In other cases, they are um, they are uh, uh, born to and raised to about one year of age on one property and when the uh, uh, production of grass becomes insufficient to maintain those, uh, 
those cattle, they are shifted to other areas where uh, grass production is, is still occurring. And in two of these cases, the, the animals are finished in a feedlot for around 100 to 130 days. So in two of the production systems include feedlots, the other four are exclusively um, uh, pasture-based uh, systems, in some cases supplemented with uh, crops. As you can see here, uh, the rainfall is quite varied from areas which at, at, at a low there, this uh, area known as Walgett, um, with an annual rainfall of 477 millimetres. Sorry, I cannot convert that to, um, to inches for you. Um, but we would call that uh, semi-arid um, on, on, the, on the cusp of where these mixed uh, cropping livestock systems would operate. And then in other cases, areas where the rainfall is what we would regard to as quite high, uh, over 1,000 uh, millimetres per annum. And the products differ. In some cases, we're talking about cattle that's sent to market at, uh, referred to as yearling cattle, 12 to 15 month old cattle. Uh, once again, I, I'm, it's in the metric units, 185 to 205 kilograms uh, dressed weight would be the market uh, specification. In other cases, we're talking about much heavier cattle, uh, 585 kilograms live weight. These are the market specifications that these uh, producers are, are working uh, towards. So um, we spent a lot of time going into detail of the water use in the first instance, looking not only at the water use of the inputs into the farming system, so the fertilizers, the pesticides, the crops that are imported into the farm, uh, but also the water use that's occurring on the farm. And I just put, put this uh, slide up to illustrate that, um, you know, we, we haven't taken a broad brush simplification. We've used a, uh, a, an animal physiological model to look at the water uh, requirements. It's a fully balanced uh, model uh, looking at uh, water inputs and outputs. And, uh, and what I'm showing you here is for a one-year-old steer, just the variation that occurs between, this is a, a tablelands area uh, in July, which is our winter, compared to that uh, semi-arid area in, in, in our summer, January, and you can see that the, the water requirements, the drinking water requirements vary considerably in, uh, from seven or eight litres up to over 40, 40 uh, litres. Um, and then we put these kinds of calculations into, into a farm water balance model. Um, just briefly, here's the, here's the, um, the inputs of precipitation, pasture evapotranspiration. Uh, we've got uh, the uh, evaporation from the farm dams that are used for watering the livestock, the livestock drinking water, all these things being considered. And where we get to is this is just an example where we model all these flows. And, and the reason why I'm, I'm showing you this in some detail is in contrast to what uh, Matt, has, Matt has described to you uh, using this so-called green water um, metric. And you know, no criticism of that, it, it tells you certain things. Uh, the approach we tend to take in an LCA, we're interested in, well, our activities, our production system, how is it changing the environment? So we're more interested to, to assess uh, what is the change in flows, not the absolute uh, use of water associated with evapotranspiration. We're more interested in saying, well, how is putting animals and building dams uh, on this uh, land, how is that changing the flows? And, and um, in the most case, uh, these 
raising animals on the land and, and, and supply, building dams, and they do have an impact on, on water availability, but it's, it's very small in comparison to the large uh, volumes that are uh, flowing through the, the, the natural uh, evapotranspiration cycles. So, uh, to share with you some, some results, here we have the, uh, uh, the six different systems here. And of course, in life cycle assessment, we're not just interested in water, as I mentioned at the beginning. We're interested in different sorts of environmental impacts. We're interested in understanding how they trade off against one another. So what I'm showing you here is also the carbon footprint expressed as uh, kilograms of CO2 equivalents. Of course, there's all different types of uh, greenhouse gases. We express it as a CO2 equivalent. Um, uh, per kilogram of live weight. So this is from, from what we call cradle, the extraction of resources from the environment up to the livestock being exported from the farm gate ready to go um, for processing. So you can see there the, 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 the range of carbon footprint is from 10.1 to 12.7, to, to which, uh, which is pretty much uh, similar to uh, the carbon footprint uh, you'll find for, for, um, for similarly raised uh, cattle uh, in, in Europe or the US. Because these are, are mixed farming systems, the, the farmers are having a lot of contact with their animals. Uh, they're being uh, managed very uh, carefully for high productivity. Um, so the point here is that the carbon footprint, uh, nothing too surprising there. Actually, not, not particularly variable. Um, the lowest carbon footprint was associated with one of the feedlot finishing systems. As a, as a general rule, your cattle that are raised in feedlots will tend to have a slightly lower carbon footprint than those that are raised uh, on pasture. Of course, once you go into the rangeland systems where the cattle can be um, uh, less productive, um, at least in the Australian uh, context, um, the carbon footprints can be very much larger. But in this case, this is the sorts of numbers we're talking about. Now, we refer to water footprint. And here we express the water footprint in units which are uh, somewhat analogous to the carbon footprint. So it's expressed per kilogram live weight the same. Uh, but in this case, we talk about litres of water equivalent. Because once again, we're not just talking about uh, pure flows of, of of water, uh, we're, we're interested in, in, in uh, a metric that tells us something about uh, the way water that's used in that production system is contributing to water stress or water scarcity. Often those two terms are used uh, interchangeably. And maybe I should have made it a little larger here, but uh, the way we calculate that is that at each location in the supply chain where water is being used, we multiply that by the locally relevant water stress index, and that index ranged from effectively zero to, to, to one. So when water is being used in areas where water is scarce, it is, uh, it is weighted much higher than water use in areas where water is not scarce, because uh, you know, obviously where we're using water in areas of scarcity, our potential to be contributing to environmental impacts and harm is, is greater. Um, and so we sum up 
all of those results. Because we're taking a, a, a life cycle perspective, we've got many places where water is being used and they may have different uh, water stress indices. So we multiply those together and sum them after that. And then we divide by the global average water stress index. So we're able to express it in these H2O equivalent units, uh, which the way we would explain it in, 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 to interpret it is it's what it's saying is, uh, in this case, the water footprint is 14.4 litres H2O equivalent. So the contribution to water stress of this uh, product is equivalent to 14.4 litres of consumptive water use at the global average water stress index. You can see that it's, it's very similar to the way in which we explain what's a, a CO2 equivalent. 10.2 uh, kilograms CO2 equivalent means we've got a, a combined um, uh, net emission of greenhouse gases of various kinds equivalent to 10.2 kilograms of CO2. Of course, in livestock production, uh, carbon dioxide is not the, uh, the major greenhouse gas that's involved. It's, it's methane from enteric fermentation. Um, but we express it in the unit CO2 equivalent. So we can communicate it simply and we can compare uh, one thing with another. So this is the kind of units, it's not the only unit, but it's the kind of way in which uh, water footprint information is being, um, uh, can be communicated taking a life cycle uh, assessment um, approach. Actually, since these sorts of studies have been uh, contributing to the, um, to the development of uh, water footprinting from a life cycle perspective. But um, also at the same time, water footprinting um, calculation methods are being defined and adapted um, through the ISA process. And uh, just to point out that actually today, we would call this, uh, this water footprint a water availability, a water stress or water scarcity footprint. Uh, because it doesn't take into account uh, in these calculations the water quality impacts. So for example, our, our, our fertilisers that are applied to the land, we may have losses of nitrogen or phosphorus into the aqueous environment. Um, under current LCA thinking, we really need to be um, accounting for those as well. And there are ways of doing that but in this case, I'm just referring to consumptive water use. Um, people, you might ask, well, what do those numbers mean relative to other things? Well, here's just a, 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 a broad uh, range of different products uh, which, um, which we've done studies using, similar but not entirely always exactly the same kinds of methods. And what you can see here, um, here was a, a, a carbonated beverage, 375 mils, 2.6 litres H2O equivalent for this product. Um, potato chips, 77. Uh, skim milk powder in one uh, relatively um, non-water stressed area of, 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 of Australia, 15.8. Uh, fresh milk from the same area, 1.9 litre per uh, litre of milk. Uh, wheat, barley, oats, we've done numerous studies on cropping systems um, and of course the, the results range enormously, uh, especially depending on the level of irrigation, 0.9 to 152, uh, 
we've done studies for commercial and multinational food companies that are interested in these sorts of things. A large size bag confectionery, 21. Uh, a uh, pasta sauce, 232. Fresh tomatoes grown in greenhouses, 3 to 35, depending on the particular production system and its location, the water resource. Australian fresh mango, 143. So just going back a slide, what you see here uh, also that I failed to mention was two things. One is that the numbers in some cases can be quite low, 3.3 litres per kilogram live weight at farm gate. In other cases, the numbers are much larger, 221. Also, what you can see, as it should be obvious, is that the numbers vary substantially depending on the kind of production system it is, its location, the local water stress associated with the water that's being used. The second point to make is that these, uh, this range of water footprint values for these um, uh, beef cattle production systems in southern Australia, which are coming from mixed uh, cropping livestock uh, farms, are pretty much in the same sort of range as uh, as, as uh, cereal products grown in the same part of the country. The range here for wheat, barley and oats was 0.9 to 152. The range for these uh, livestock uh, was um, 3 to 200. Uh, now obviously you cannot compare a kilogram of grain at farm gate with a kilogram of of, of an animal at, at farm gate. We, we don't just eat animals, we don't eat unprocessed um, grains either. But it's just to make the simple point, and, I, and it may, uh, well, there we go, there we go. Agricul firstly, agriculture is not homogeneous. Now, we hear it in the media. Fortunately, the message is starting to uh, dwindle away but for a while there, it was like our media was being assaulted and our industries were being assaulted with these simplified, broad-brushed messages about um, the water use associated with livestock. You know, at one point, people were saying, don't you know that um, the average Australian is depleting so many Olympic swimming pools of water with every uh, so many um, you know, consumption of beef and these sorts of things. Well, I don't think those, um, those messages are helpful. They're not really science-based. They're not helping anyone to make a decision that's going to help them to uh, have a more sustainable diet or to reduce pressure on, um, on, on, on water resources. Um, they're really just uh, you know, scandalous in some ways. So agriculture is not homogeneous. It's dangerous to make these, these big generalizing um, statements. And, and I think what we've been able to show that for some animal products, the potential environmental impacts associated with water use are minimal are minimal. And now that's not to say that that's true in every case. I mean, where you've got significant irrigation, and if that irrigation's coming from highly water-stressed uh, water sources, of course your water footprints are going to be considerable. But rather than trying to 
um, uh, villainize an industry or a sector uh, with these um, generalizations, why don't we use some science evidence, and I think LCA has much to contribute here in identifying uh, you know, how we can make uh, all food production systems uh, more sustainable, uh, because they're all highly variable, depending on how they're produced, where they're grown, what kind of production system. And I don't think that any, you know, we have a very broad, rich diet in Australia, as you do here in the United States, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, it's very nutritionally diverse, and we don't foresee that that's going to change. People are going to continue to want to uh, consume a broad range of, of, of products in their diets and have choice over that. I think it's much more constructive to be uh, using these kinds of te techniques to firstly help all food industries to help identify where their hotspots are in terms of environmental impacts in relation to water use, identify strategies for reducing those impacts which take into account other uh, environmental impacts such as carbon footprint, land use and so forth. And if we are going to communicate information to, to, the, to the public, because in, in many jurisdictions now there is an increasing demand for that, um, well, let's communicate um, constructive science-based uh, information of, of this kind. Um, as I say, I've given these uh, kinds of talks often in front of uh, groups of uh, farmers who, who are irrigators. And it's almost like I can see their, their guns under the, <laughs> under the table. It's not, a, it, it's not a bias against irrigated agriculture because irrigated agriculture has contributed a lot uh, to global food uh, supply and um, we see that contributing. Uh, and there's many benefits of, of, of irrigation as I mentioned uh, before and has been articulated um, much at this meeting. Um, but let's, 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 let's use these sorts of uh, techniques to, 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 to really identify how we can uh, make constructive change uh, going forward. I think I'll call it quits at that. Thank you very much for your attention. I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, so um, just to clarify on the, uh, the, the semi-arid case study in Australia, um, were those cattle fed by any um, grains that were produced with irrigation? Um, I can't remember every input to every um, farm, but as a rule, that, that production system was just the beginning of the supply chain. So they were, they were doing the, um, the breeding mm -hmm. of the cattle and then the young calves would be um, um, fed on that farm for maybe they're nine months old or something like that. And, and then we would head into a season where the pasture production was insufficient. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the farmer ad adapting his business to what the, the natural resources are in that area. Um, and then those cattle were shipped um, further towards the coast to uh, hillier country that had uh, more of a summer rainfall 
pattern, so there was sufficient pasture production for those cattle. Um, they'd maybe be grown on for another year or, or something like that, and then they were being finished uh, in a feedlot. Now, as for the, that semi-arid farming, they do do cropping in that area. That same farm was probably also cropping, maybe also um, using some of the stubble for the, for the, for the animals. Um, so capturing the benefits of, of, of the systems in, 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 together. Um, from year to year, that farmer may indeed purchase some, some, um, some additional uh, crop products if necessary. But from memory, I think, as a general rule, they were not. Thanks. Because once the pasture is uh, no longer available, the cattle will be sold. Thanks. Here, uh, about your conclusion about irrigated agriculture footprint for crops. Here in Nebraska, um, irrigated maize production actually has higher, uh, has a lower water footprint than rain-fed uh, maize production because it uses water more efficiently to achieve yield. Yeah, well, that's where we, I, I indicated that there are different people using the word water footprint in different ways. What I would say is you might have a, um, a, a, a superior overall water use efficiency in the irrigated system. In fact, most irrigated crops have a, have a, have a superior water use efficiency um, because the water needs are, are, are being managed. Um, but from a water footprint perspective, where we, what we mean by our water footprint is an indicator which says something about the potential environmental impacts of the water use. Um, I think that using that kind of water footprint definition, you would definitely say that the irrigated system, particularly if it's coming from an aquifer that may be um, being withdrawn at a higher rate than its replenishment, the potential environmental impacts would be greater. So it, it just depends on how defining what you mean by water footprint, but certainly water use efficiency as a resource use efficiency, I, I can see what you're saying. And so our third speaker this morning will talk about the North American perspective of livestock and water. Jude, Cap Jude Capper is a livestock sustainability consultant. She lives in Bozeman, Montana. She's also an adjunct professor at Washington State University and an affiliate of Montana State University. Help me welcome Jude, please. Thank you. It's a uh, pleasure to be here. I hope everybody can uh, hear me at the back. And uh, thanks to Brad for setting me up perfectly. This, is, this, this has been fabulous. I've just been gridding away at the back. Um, because even though my, my title is a livestock sustainability consultant, what I, um, how I talk about my job is that I basically go around doing talks, doing research, and trying to give farmers and ranchers the tools, the facts, the figures, and the data to talk back about, to talk back against some of the myths and the uh, misperceptions that we hear every single day, both from the consumer and the media. Now, all the data I'm gonna show is from a US point of view, but I'm gonna begin with a quote. And uh, this is a rather 
touchy-feely quote, I, I, I guess, but I particularly like it in, in that it says, the ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. Now, I apologize that I only flew in late last night, so I haven't seen any talks yet um, bar the first two, but I'm pretty sure that all of you will have heard at least, you know, 37 times that on a global basis, agriculture accounts for 70% of our global water use. And to be honest with you, I'm pretty okay with that because agriculture is the only thing that we really, really need. We need fuel, we need fiber, we need food. Everything else, you know, golf courses and iPads and cars are nice and they're useful, but unfortunately, even though I think I need my iPad, we don't really need them, but we do need, we do need agriculture. The problem with that 70% figure is firstly, that it's a percent, so it may go up or down, depending on irrigation for golf courses or use for iPads and so on. So it isn't an absolute figure. But the second issue that I have with it is, is that it's a global average. So for example, at the moment, the global average wage is $18,000 per year. Does that mean that we all earn 18,000? Of course not. So global averages and even national averages paint a very easy picture with which to talk about, but they don't necessarily tell us anything. And this is where the anti-animal ag groups kind of have us by the neck. Because as a livestock industry, we, we really face a challenge. These are some images from Peter and other groups. And in the last you know, five years or so, they were basically talking about carbon, 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 climate change, global warming. But more recently, they focused in on water. These two girls in the uh, top right, they were in Times Square. The picture was taken about three years ago now. Two naked girls, Times Square, in the daytime. And that gets a certain amount of attention anyway. The banner gets even more attention. One pound of meat equals 2,463 gallons of water. Note there's no reference there or citation, but it's out there as fact, and it's quoted over and over and over again, particularly on Facebook and Twitter and Google and Wikipedia and so on and so on. But it sounds like a good, precise number. But to the consumer, 2,463 gallons of water, well, it's a big number, what does that mean? Well, they've got cleverer. Two girls in a bath this time, London, England. One steak equals 50 baths. Everybody can picture 50 baths, right? You know, that's a lot of water again, so therefore I shouldn't eat the steak. That's going to kill the planet. So water use is often used as a rationale to say we should be vegan or we should be vegetarian. In the spirit of a true confession, I was vegan when I was about 15. It lasted about 12 months, and then I was eating bacon as if pigs were going out of fashion. And I'd love to go back to it, but I, I really can't. I love meat too much. But we have these images out there every single day. So we have tomatoes, potatoes, wheat, peas, people, and beef. And on this slide, it claims, for example, that beef uses over 5,000 gallons of water per pound. So the consumer every day is bombarded with images which effectively say, you care about the planet, you shouldn't eat meat. The problem is, as I see it, it's not always just from the obviously anti-animal agriculture groups. This was an article in National Geographic, came out in April 2010 now. The hidden water use that we use every single day. Apple, apples compared to beer, beef, chicken, pork, etc. National Geographic is a global, thought to be 
scientific publication. It has a global readership of 30.9 million people. To put that into context, that's about 10% of the population of the states. It's about half the population of the UK. So that's read by millions and millions of people every day. They trust it. Again, this does have a citation, a reference, the Water Footprint Network. And at, and at this time, which as I say was about two years ago now, the website looked like this. It was comprehensive. It looked really, really good. We've got apples, we've got barley, beef, beer, bread. Assumptions here, it all looks totally scientific. But again, here we come into the global average versus the regional average. Because in their assumptions, they have this quote here. In an industrial beef production system, i.e. not you know, Kenya or Ireland or France, but the States, it takes an average of three years before the animal is slaughtered. Those of you in here who know about beef in the States, if it was taking three years, we would not have an efficient system. It would be, you know, entirely crazy. But moving on, average of three years, before the animal produces about 200 kilos of boneless beef. Now, I've been working in this area for about five years ago, and five years now, I've turned into a total data nerd. And I know that one kilo equals 2.20462 pounds. So in, so in my brain, I'm going, wow, it takes us three years to produce about 441 pounds of carcass weight. That doesn't sound like the beef industry that I know and that I work with every day. So if we do the comparison, their numbers on the left, US average for 2011 on, on the right. Boneless beef yield in their comparison, 441 pounds, US average 605. If we work that back, we get a carcass weight, US average 817, their average 588, slaughter weights 948, which to put into context would be a Jersey cow, you know, basically. US average just over 1,300 pounds. So the carcass weight assumption in the first place is about 450 pounds, sorry, 350 pounds too low. But what's the real killer here is the total days, because three years is 1,095 days. That's over twice the US average of 15 months per animal in the States. And that would work back to growth rates for the global example of less than a pound per day compared to the US average of just under three pounds per animal per day over their lifetime. Given that, it's not entirely surprising that their average for water use of just over 18,000 gallons per pound of boneless beef is about four times higher than the uh, numbers for the states published back in 1994 now by Beckett and Altgen at UC Davis. But the problem is that this, this number here isn't on Google and Wikipedia and Facebook and Twitter and out there every single day, whereas these numbers are out there all the time. So the beef industry really does face a big challenge. So what is water use in the States for beef at the moment? And I should point out this is up, up to the arrival of the animals at the slaughterhouse door, so it doesn't include processing. But with a similar approach to LCA, this includes everything, crops, animals, drinking water, sanitation, etc., up until those animals arrive. Now, I have an animal science background, and I'm not here to say that beef isn't the issue crops are, but as you can see, livestock themselves in terms of drinking water in this example only account for about 5% of the total 
water use per pound of beef. But again, percentages go up and down and they change. So in this example, conventional beef based on a full system survey uses about 258 gallons of water per pound. Now, we have improved that over time, and we're continuing to improve that. If I take you back to 1977, 35 years ago now, we're comparing 1977 to 2007. Over the last 30 years, we've improved nutrition, management, genetics, animal welfare. We know far better how to care for our animals each and every single day. What that means is in 1977, we needed five animals to make the same amount of beef as we needed four animals for in 2007. Fairly obviously, five animals means five lots of feed, of waste, of carbon, water, resources versus four. That's because we've improved carcass weight by about 180 pounds over that time. But what's had a bigger impact is improvements in productivity, i.e. growth rate per animal every single day. Because in 1977, it took an average of about 609 days to raise an individual animal from birth to slaughter, compared to 485 days in 2007. So not only do we need fewer animals, they're on the planet for fewer days, and that means cumulatively less resources. So if we multiply out five animals times 609 days compared to four animals times 485 days, you can see that we can make the same amount of beef in 2007 in just over 1,900 animal days of feed, land, water, carbon resources compared to just over 3,000 animal days in 1977. So productivity can have a huge impact. And if you just look at the middle bar here, water use per pound of beef over the last 30 years has come down by 12% not because of a concerted effort to cut water use overall, but simply by doing what the beef industry, either on a national or on a global basis, does best, improving efficiency, improving productivity, caring for those animals every day so that they are the most efficient that they can be. But we do face quite a challenge, and one of the biggest challenges inside the industry is the perception that totally pasture-based agriculture is better somehow for the planet. Now, this should not be seen as grass-fed is bad, corn is good, okay? There is a place for absolutely every single system. But we see images like this again every single day. So if you think back to the pie chart that I showed about four or so minutes ago, conventional beef in the States up until the arrival of the animals at the slaughterhouse door uses 258 gallons of water per pound of boneless beef. If we go to a grass-finished system, we're going up to 677 gallons per pound. Now, this system here uses 50% irrigation in improved pasture only for finishing the cattle. So it's still a small component of the total pasture. So the question is, what if we can still do that with the average level of pasture irrigation as, as per data from the USDA Irrigation Survey? Overall, the, the percentages change, but the total quantity of water is still high, 526 gallons per pound. That's at a value of 213% compared to conventional beef. And that's simply because of animal productivity. Because if we think about it on a per animal basis, conventional beef, which is the black bar on the left-hand side, 
We harvest those animals at about 1,300 pounds. We have a carcass weight of about 800 pounds. And in total, from birth to slaughter, it takes 444 days to raise those animals. If we go more extensive to totally grass-fed beef, we lose 185 pounds of carcass weight per animal. And it takes us an extra 235 days to raise them to that weight. So in total, if we change the entire US beef system to grass-fed overnight, as is talked about often in the media, we'd need nearly 65 million more total animals, cows, calves, bulls, heifers, steers, to supply the same 26.1 billion pounds of beef as we do every year in the States. So in terms of total water use, yes, we could do it. But if we take away the feedlot industry overnight, the total increase in water use to make that same 26.1 billion pounds of beef would be like adding 53 million households to the States every single year. The moment we're at about 313 million people in the States, that's like adding a third more people in terms of total water use. Now, obviously, there's a place for every system, but Efficient beef is one of our strengths. And to come back to a point from earlier, the pie charts that I showed earlier, the feedlot diet was based on corn and soy. DDG and other byproduct feeds will bring that water use down even further. So the question is, how do we do this? Well, as I say, productivity is key. And in any system, small, large, Nebraska, Texas, Kansas, Hereford, Angus, whatever the system is, the total dictator of resource use in that beef system is total herd body weight and then output from that system. So the message that I want to put across is that it almost doesn't matter how you do it. It doesn't matter where you're located. You can be pasture-based, you could be a feedlot, you can be Hereford, Angus, Charolais, whichever breed. If you improve output per unit of herd body weight, we're going to use less water, less resources, less carbon. So to give you some examples, one of the most positive things about this is, is if we improve output, we also improve economic cost. And that's a huge selling point to farmers and to ranchers. Because if it costs money to do it and we don't get that economic cost back, people aren't going to adopt it. In the cow-calf operation, for example, calving rate possibly has the biggest input. At the moment, in the States, we are at a national average of, of about 90% of cows having a calf every year. Compared to the ideal of 100%, that adds 5.5% cost per pound of beef. If we go still more extensive to a system representative of Brazil, South Africa, some parts of Australia, 60% calving rate adds 58% production cost per pound of beef. If we improve both of those to 100%, we also cut water use. 5.2% less water per pound in the States, 34% in Brazil. And again, that's simply by improving one thing in one component of, of the system, simply improving calving rate in the cow-calf. So if we look at the whole system now, we're going all the way through from the cow-calf to the feedlot. Again, whole system analysis. 
and we're looking at an imp improvement in calving rates plus the use of ionophores, implants, beta agonists, and MGA for heifers. That means our animals grow faster, we get better yields, they finish faster. Per pound of boneless beef, if we do that, again, we save economics, 62 cents per pound of boneless beef. In terms of carbon, 5.8 pounds per pound, and um, 5.28 pounds per pound of beef, or 5.28 kilos per kilo of boneless beef. But in terms of water use, we have a huge advantage. We save nearly 67 gallons of water per pound simply by using safe, approved by the FDA technologies. There, there are many more examples I could talk about, but obviously I can't because we have time issues. So I'd like to finish with the biggest questions that I get, that I get every single day, because I think as Scientists, it's very easy to focus in on, I'm going to look at this, and this is very, very important, and to lose that bigger picture sometimes. So the first question is, is water really consumed by beef cattle? And this is probably the biggest question I get asked. Do we really consume it? Do we really use it? I took this picture. I was out on a friend's ranch in eastern Montana on horseback out on a Friday morning, and I took this picture, cows, 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 far as I can see, drinking every day, but also, to be kind of crude, peeing that water back out again every single day. Is that water used, per se, by beef? Because that's one, one issue that the beef industry in the States, at the moment, at least, has a huge issue with. The second one, from the packing industry, if we have a packer or a processor who takes water out of the river, cleans it, uses it, and puts it back in a cleaner way than it was in the river in the first place. Are they using water? Are they giving off more than they take in? How do we account for all of those things? And thirdly, to come back to Matt's point about protein earlier, what is the metric here? Should it just be per pound of beef we use X gallons? Should it be per gram of protein we use X gallons? Or should it even be per X grams or pounds of highly digestible protein or available protein? Because not all proteins are equal in the big scheme of things. Beef production, whether on a national basis or a global basis, does use a heck of a lot of water. And I'm not here to say that it doesn't. But if we improve productivity, if we care for our animals the best that we can in whichever system, we will cut water use and we will have a more sustainable future. So with that, I'd like to thank you very much. You've got my email address here, my Twitter um, handle, I believe it's called. I have a blog here, and there will be a PDF of this uh, presentation at the link right at the bottom. And I'm happy to answer questions if we have time, but if not, I'll be here all day. So with that, thank you very much. We've got one at the back. Pat Shea, uh, UNL School of Natural Resources. Hi. I think I think there's no doubt about the tremendous and quite impressive improvements in uh, beef production efficiency 
and that includes, as you've, de as you've demonstrated, water use efficiency um, in terms of production. Um, but between 1977 and 2007, how have the numbers of uh, beef cattle changed during that period? Because even if, even if we're more efficient, and we definitely are, which is wonderful, I'm imagining that the numbers of beef cattle has increased considerably between 1977 and, and 2007. That's, Comments a, on that, that, that's a really, really, really great point. So in terms of total beef output, we've increased slightly. We were at about, I think, 24 billion pounds of beef in 1977, 26.1 in 2007. So we've increased beef output, but only by a tiny bit. In terms of total animal numbers, we have, I've got to get the number right, uh, Oh, I can never remember this one. I believe we've got 20% less beef cattle, as in cattle, cows, calves, heifers, steers, bulls, and so on and so on, in the national herd now than we did then. So we make effectively the same amount of beef, give or take about 8% or so, with 30, 20 to 30% fewer animals. Um, just one other quick question. I, I think a, an earlier speaker showed data uh, in terms of uh, water use in relation to protein output yep. and you yep. were saying you know how what measures really should we be using and I think we need to look at it in several ways and that's certainly one and I I thought the figures um, showed much more efficiency for the monogastrics in in those terms than um, or beef, beef. Uh, so I think there there are some data in the, uh, already available in that way and it if I, I don't remember the figures exactly, I guess the previous speaker could, could remind us of those, but it seemed like there was a huge difference in favor of the monogastrics. Absolutely, and if we look at um, protein output for a monogastric versus a ruminant animal, we will absolutely see that difference. My point is more about ruminants versus, let's say, peas or soy or barley or so on and so on, but it does then come back to is water our most criteria, um, most important cri criteria, or is it, let's say, land or carbon or so on. There's a, there's a really nice paper by Wilkinson back in the UK. It was in the journal Animal. Uh, came out in, I think, 2011, and he looked at redefining feed efficiency based not just on total feed in and feed out, but human edible feed in and human edible feed out. And if that's our metric, monogastrics and grass-fed beef are very, very similar. So it's all about, is it water, is it land, is it feed, is it carbon, is it a mixture of all of them in some multi-purpose metric? And yeah, it becomes difficult, but yeah, great question. at the Inter-American Institute for Cooperation on Agriculture. Cool. Um, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on the concept of virtual water and if you found that to be useful um, concept in some of the work you've been doing or, um, or just the question. Sure, sure. So uh, the question is, could I comment on the concept of virtual water? Um, it's a difficult question. Um, I always have difficulty finding exactly how to phrase what I'm going to say. Uh, I think it's a useful concept. I think it shows useful figures. I have an issue with it in terms of rainfall, for example, in that rain is going to fall on a pasture or a crop, no matter what we do. It's just going to happen. So should beef in Montana, for example, 
well, we have drought, serious drought at the moment, and therefore have to irrigate, look as if it has a lower virtual water footprint than beef in Alabama, where their grease is beautifully, where their grass is beautifully green because they've had rain and rain and rain and rain. I think it's useful for averages. I think it's difficult when comparing amongst systems and states because rainfall, rainfall is going to fall no matter what we do about it. So as a metric, that becomes, I think, rather confusing to the consumer sometimes. Hi, my name is Bobby Wickham, and I work for the Nebraska Department of Agriculture. And both the last two speakers in particular, but all three of you, have given me a lot of hope as far as um, um, having the science to prove that what we do here in Nebraska, which is you know, a leading red meat producer, um, we're also a leader in irrigation, but um, have made efficiency improvements in both of those sectors um, over the years. Um, I really enjoyed your presentations. My question, though, is, and you started out talking about the problems we face as far as the media and general public perception. So where do we start with messaging? That's a pretty big question. If big I had an answer, I wouldn't even have to be here because we would have solved the problem, right? Um, I guess we t turn the challenge back on its head. And the challenge that we face is the consumer now is asking more questions, getting very easy access to the answers in quotes through the internet and Google and Wikipedia and Facebook and Twitter and the preponderance of books by people like Michael Pollan and Joel Salatin and so on and so on. So we have to be even more proactive and aggressive and not defensive but just here are the facts, this is what we do. And we really need to be all over Facebook and Twitter and, and all of these outlets. Um, I have a slide which isn't in, in um, these, but I uh, put together some data just last year and it was how many people on, on a national basis Montana feeds with the beef that, it com that comes off their cow-calf operations. And Montana feeds 12.9 million people with their annual amount of beef, which is really cool. I put that data on, on a picture with some cows and calves in a pasture from behind my house. I put it on Facebook, and within seven days, that had been shared by 450 people. And as the average person has four, uh, 220 or so friends, that had been potentially seen by 100,000 people in seven days. And I, that just blew me away, because I've been preaching like Facebook and Twitter, and yeah, it's great, and yeah, it's fabulous, but we can really get some positive messages out there with the right picture and data and message to the consumer from people that they trust, i.e. their friends and their family and their workmates, rather than an ad from, you know, quote, big ag saying, we do a great job, so buy our beef. That doesn't work. But social media really can have a really big impact, and we need to be better at it, and we need to be smarter at it to combat all the all the stuff that's out there every day. Thank you. Um, we have two speakers left in this uh, second part of the session. Uh, you might note on the agenda, Michael um, Blummel was supposed to give a presentation, and unfortunately, he was not able to travel at the last minute. 
So um, he has shared some of his slides with uh, our first speaker, and uh, that she actually worked uh, in a similar unit as he did, so hopefully she'll be able to cover some of that information. So our next speaker, excuse me, everybody in the back, please. Okay, our next speaker is Katrine Dushimacher. I'm sorry, I probably murdered that name. <laughs> uh, Katrine is currently an assistant professor of plant sciences at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. So please help me welcome Katrine. Thank you. Okay. Good morning, everyone. Um, first of all, a big thank you to the organizers of. You hear me? Yeah? Okay, so yeah, big thank you to the organizers of this uh, conference for inviting me to be here and, um, and take part in these uh, interesting discussions on livestock and water. Um, so as Deb already mentioned, I'm here to give you a, a regional perspective and uh, we'll talk, talk first of all about the African uh, perspective, where most of my work is uh, focused on. But I'll also be talking a little bit about um, India, because I'll, I'll be presenting also on behalf of Michael Blumel, who unfortunately could not um, be, be here this week. So in the de developing world, um, livestock um, plays an important role in the farming systems, which are often mixed crop livestock systems. And so this presentation will mostly focus on these mixed crop livestock systems. And in these systems, livestock, they um, contribute importantly to people's livelihoods, um, nutrition, and also to risk mitigation. And as we've heard from, uh, from Mats, um, there are um, rising demands in, uh, in, well, globally, in fact, um, for animal products. And of course, these rising demands, they create uh, market opportunities for the, for the smallholders. But of course, they also come with um, some environmental um, concerns, as um, livestock is often associated with high water consumption, natural resource degradation in some places, and greenhouse gas emissions. So if we are to, to meet these, uh, these increased demands without further environmental pressure, or um, more specifically, without higher water consumption, then we will need um, to make some gains in livestock water productivity. And so what we'll do in this presentation, we'll first um, talk a little bit about the livestock water productivity concept and the methodology to assess this um, livestock water productivity. And then I'll take you through um, three case studies. So first of all, we will um, look at a case study from the Nile Basin. After that, we will focus in or zoom in to one area in that basin, and that's the Ethiopian Highlands. And then after that, we will switch continents completely and we'll talk a little bit about the white revolution in India. And in all these three case studies, we will, um, we will discuss different entry points um, for improving livestock water productivity. Okay, so just a little bit about the livestock water productivity or LWP concept, which was first introduced by Don Peden and colleagues. Um, in an attempt to be able to um, actually incorporate livestock issues in water productivity assessments. And the framework that they produced uh, or proposed um, was actually based on water accounting principles. Um, we then later on modified um, or adapted this framework for specific use in crop livestock systems. And this framework allows you to, well, to, to understand water flows in the system and to also um, think about well, what feed goes into the system, 
what livestock products and services are produced. And also what we did here in the, in the pink areas was to identify um, strategies for improvements and the areas where those strategies have to be targeted at. So livestock water productivity, um, actually in line with crop water productivity, is, um, is or can be calculated as the ratio of livestock outputs over water depleted to uh, produce them. And with livestock outputs, we um, are not talking only about uh, meat and milk when we look at smallholder systems. We also talk about um, other outputs, such as traded animals, draft power, um, manure, transport. And so by expressing all these different outputs in monetary terms, we can then sum them up and use them in this equation. Now when we talk about water depletion um, in these smallholder systems, we basically focus mostly on um, evapotranspiration to produce feed, because um, that accounts for over 95% of the total water consumption in, in livestock production um, as a global average. So what do we need in order to be able to calculate evapotranspiration? Well, we need information on what are the different feed sources, how much of these different feed sources is actually taken in by the animals, and on what areas are these feed sources produced. And, well, to tell you a little bit more about crop residues, because crop residues are a very important feed source in these mixed systems, and so what we do to account for the water to produce them is we, we partition the water um, into two parts, one part that goes to the grain, that is then used for human consumption, and then one part that goes into the stover, which is then used as feed. And so we only account for that part of the water that goes into the, into the stover or the straw production. Okay, so after, um, after this I think we can move to, to the first case study, which um, was the Nile Basin. So the Nile Basin, which is uh, pictured here, um, is characterized by mostly rain-fed agriculture, apart from some smaller pockets of irrigated agriculture, which are mostly happening um, along, along the Nile. Um, but invariably, um, livestock is very important for people's livelihoods in the basin. Um, but we see that high li livestock densities in some parts um, are responsible for um, problems of natural resource degradation and also water scarcity. So the aim of this study was to quantify water use and productivity within the basin and to get an understanding of what are the, the major determinants of livestock water productivity, what are the major constraints and what are opportunities for improvement. So um, here this map shows then the livestock water use uh, across the basin and this study found that um, for, the, for the basin as a whole, water use for feed production equaled about 100 billion cubic meters of water, which actually was only 5% of the total rainfall received in the basin. Now, if we look at the colors in this map, we see that the, the dark blue colors are areas where the water requirement for feed is close or even higher than the water available for feed. And so in those areas, we can say that livestock densities are probably not sustainable in the long term if systems um, continue as they are. 
Now in the lighter colored areas, um, so for example this one over here, but also here, we see that uh, water requirements are actually much lower than the water that is available. So in those areas, we can say that feed and water resources are actually not used to their potential. And that actually indicates that there are, that there are inefficiencies um, in the system. These maps then show you the livestock water productivity across the basin and we have um, on the left we have livestock water productivity for only milk. In the middle it's for it's livestock water productivity where only meat is taken into account and then on, on your um, right you will have the combined uh, figure where the two are expressed in US dollars per cubic meter. Um, high livestock water productivity values are um, pictured in well, red and yellow colors, and low values are in blue. Now, there's two, um, two areas where, that are characterized by, by typically higher values of LWP, and those are the Egyptian uh, Nile Delta and the Kenyan Highlands. So I've circled them here and here. Um, and actually, these areas, they, they stand in sharp contrast with, with areas that have... Um, a similar agroecological potential, but show much lower livestock water productivity values. And two examples are um, circled here. That's, the, uh, that's irrigated areas along the Nile in southern Sudan, and then the Ethiopian highlands as compared to the Kenyan highlands. So analyzing these differences across the basin and these patterns um, across the basin, it was found that um, LWP is determined by four major um, factors and those are feed availability, meat and milk production per animal, mortality rates, which can be as high as 30% um, for young animals and 10% for adult animals um, in various parts of the basin, and then finally also marketing conditions. And overall, it was concluded that um, a, good, a good balance of uh, animals feed and drinking water is actually key um, to improve livestock water productivity. Okay, well, let's zoom in now to one area in the basin. So we're zooming in now to the Ethiopian highlands, which are um, indicated here with the, the black circle. Um, and when we look at what the figures that were found for this area in, in the basin level study, we see that um, LWP ranged from 0 0.06 to 0 0.08 US dollar per cubic meter. Now, interestingly, what we found when we did a household level study in the Ethiopian highlands, we found that um, the LWP values at household level were actually quite similar to what was found at the basin level. And that was a bit of a surprise because we, we had much more detailed information that we could use to calculate that. And so we did that for two uh, contrasting environments, one subhumid environment in which irrigation um, was, was done um, here and there, not, not everywhere, um, and then a semi-arid environment where there was no irrigation at all and where there was poor market ex um, access. And we found that LWP values uh, ranged from about 0.08 to 0.09 US uh, dollar per cubic meter. Now, the big difference with the Nile, with, with the basin level study was that at the household level, we took into account also the other products and services that livestock provides to um, these farmers. And so we found that actually meat and milk um, contribute only 30% of the total um, livestock, 
of the total household income for these people. And we found that actually other services such as transport, manure, draft power, uh, contributed very importantly um, to people's livelihoods. And um, just to illustrate, there's a few pictures around the pie chart that give you an idea of, of transporting um, services, of, of trashing, of uh, plowing, etc. Now the reason why we found such similar values with the basin level study was that the offtake rates of milk and meat in our um, case were much lower than in the basin level um, study. And so this points to to some issues of data quality at this larger um, scale. Okay, so once we had calculated these LWP values, well, we wanted to know, okay, what, how can we improve the situation? And so to answer that question, we started with identifying what are the gaps and constraints in the system that lead to low um, water productivity values. And so one way of doing that was to look at the water flows for feed production. And we did that for uh, cropland and um, grazing land. And we found that actually the, the productive use of, of water, transpiration, accounted for only 50% of the total water outflow. So that meant also that half of the water outflow was actually lost as unproductive water flows, such as um, evaporation and runoff. And the reason why that is so in the Ethiopian highlands is that we have a lot of um, degraded lands. So one solution to actually, well, close this gap or, or um, solve this problem would be to rehabilitate those degraded lands. And, and actually what you see in, in the Ethiopian highlands is that um, open, open access grazing lands, such as these ones that are very degraded, um, in, in many places they are being closed for grazing so that um, the natural vegetation can restore um, and, and you get more healthy ecosystem functioning again. Another way to close the gap is by physical soil and water conservation measures, which is also quite common uh, in the highlands. And we have examples of gully rehabilitation, uh, trenches and stone burns. And here you see what happens when a gully is rehabilitated in, um, in, an, in one area. And so these solutions, they have in common that um, through vegetation restoration and physical soil and water conservation, um, these, these unproductive water flows, such as evaporation and runoff, they're transformed into productive water flows, um, transpiration, by which also more biomass is produced that can then be used as feed for the livestock. Now, another way of identifying gaps was to look at the energy budget of the animals. So what we did is we, we calculated um, how much energy is spent on different activities by the animals. And we found that um, actually about two qu three quarters of the energy is spent on, on maintenance. Um, now, why is that so? Um, well, one reason is that there's, um, there's poor feed quantity and quality in those systems. And that is um, shown by, for example, um, sorry, this, um, this feed budget here, where you see that there are severe feed shortages uh, in the dry season, and especially just before the start of the rainy season. Another reason is uh, related to the diet composition. Um, so in these systems, crop residues are the major feed source, but crop residues, they have low um, energy and nutrient content. So because they're so important, they actually limit the, the, the nutrient and energy intake by, by the animals. And so that's also one reason 
that um, the proportion of the energy spent on maintenance is so high. Now, there's many potential solutions to actually solve that problem, but we'll give a few examples of those when we talk about the Indian example. Um, I just want to come back once more to this pie chart um, because there's one more interesting thing to notice here, and that is that the energy spent on walking is actually much higher than the energy spent, and sorry, the energy spent on walking is represented in, in red here, the slides in red, which is actually much higher than the energy spent on lactation, shown in yellow, or the energy um, spent for, um, for growth, for meat production, which is shown in light blue. Now, why would that be? Well, in, in our study area, um, the cattle and, and the sheep and the goats, they walk in search of feed and water. So they're not kept in stalls, they just freely roam around um, to find their, their, their feed and their, their water. Now in the rainy season, that is not a big problem because there's plenty of community water ponds where, where the cattle can drink. And so animals, they walk on average about two kilometers a day, which is a doable situation. But in the dry season, these community ponds, they dry up, and that forces animals to actually walk long distances in search of, of water. And they typically travel about nine kilometers a day to the nearest river or wetland to access water. And of course, by walking such long distances, they lose a lot of energy, they lose body condition, etc. Now, what can, be, can we do about that? Well, improving the availability of animal drinking points is, is the obvious solution. And um, NGOs in the area, they work with, with local farmers to actually install water harvesting structures so that people have access to, to drinking water in their homestead. And this, of course, reduces the walking distances. Animals save energy, and that energy can be used for um, productive purposes such as milk production. And based on a survey, we found that the milk water productivity per cow could actually be increased by about 35%. Okay, well, time to move um, to India then, um, where we talk a little bit about the White Revolution. Um, so this White Revolution has actually transformed India in about 30 years from a milk-deficient nation to the largest milk producer in the world. And most of that production comes from the millions of smallholder farmers. And, and that means that dairy, farmer, dairy farming has actually become the largest rural employment generator in the country. So it's quite significant, but of course, it comes at um, a huge environmental burden as well. If we look, for example, at um, the water footprint, and I know that this is um, yeah, a concept that can be interpreted in, in different ways, but these are figures that, um, that Michael sent me, so we'd have to ask him what they actually mean. <laughs> but I think they tell a story. They tell the story that, um, that in India, milk water productivity is actually um, very low. The water footprint, so the, the amount, the volume of liters of water that is needed to produce a kilogram of milk is much higher than the global average. So why is um, milk water productivity so low in India and, and what can we do about it? That's basically the question. Now, um, part of the answer goes back to feed water productivity. Remember that I said that um, feed is responsible for over 95% of the water consumption in, in the livestock sector, so it's important that we start by looking at that. So if we look at the, the diet composition currently in India, we see that it's dominated by crop residues, 
Um, planted fodder crops and greens come um, at the second and third place and concentrates contribute only a little bit. When we look at feed water productivity, we see that the, the values actually range um, quite importantly from about 0.3 to about 5 kilograms of dry matter per cubic meter of water. So we see that the crop residues, they're actually the, the most uh, productive. They, they produce most kilograms per cubic meter of water, and that is related to this water partitioning issue. So we only, we only account for the water that goes into the straw, not for the water that is used to produce the grain. And these low figures for planted fodder crops, for example, they come from irrigation systems in which uh, water use efficiency um, is, is fairly low. Now, the other um, explanation for the low animal productivity is the herd composition in India. So, of the total livestock population, only 24% are actually milk animals. Um, and of those milk animals, only a small proportion are improved crossbred cows that can produce a reasonable amount of 6 litres per day. A lot of the animals are um, local unimproved breeds that produce only well, even less than two liters per day. And so that leads to an overall low uh, milk productivity of about 3.6 liters per day per animal. Now, it's also interesting to have a look at what these animals spend their energy on. And quite similar to the Ethiopian um, situation, we see that animals spend about 70% of their energy on maintenance and only 30% on productive purposes. So how could, we be, how could we bring the bar on the left down and the bar on the right up? Well, one uh, obvious solution would be to increase animal productivity. Um, I think we've seen what that could do from the previous presentation. Um, so this is where we are today um, at an average um, animal productivity of 3.6 liters per day and a total herd size of about, I think, 70 million uh, milk animals for the whole country. So what if we gradually increase the daily milk production? Well, that would lead to a much lower total number of animals to produce if we, if we keep the same country level uh, production of milk. Well, less animals means less energy requirements, but not only do we need less energy, also, the proportion of the energy spent on productive purposes would go up from about 30 to 65%. And less energy means less feed, less feed means less water. So increasing the animal productivity would lead to a um, decrease in the water requirement from more than 100 billion cubic meters of water per year to about 50 um, cubic 50 billion cubic meters of water. But how can we achieve that? How can we achieve this increased animal productivity? Well, first of all, by changing the herd composition towards more productive breeds. But that has to go hand in hand with, with improved feed management, as we, need to as we would need to increase the dry matter intake and also the nutrient and energy content of the feed. Um, so we need to go back to this table um, to explain how we could do that, because this shows that um, not only are crop residues the most important feed source today, they are projected to even become more important in the future. So by 2020, um, people have calculated that crop residues would constitute 
70% of the diet, um, and, that's a, and that's again a country um, level average. But as I said, crop residues, they're low in energy content, so in order to increase animal productivity, people would have to supplement their animals. And that's exact, exactly what um, people see is happening now in India, as uh, local feed companies are um, actually coming up with, with innovations, um, such as these feed blocks, um, which have a, a much better um, yeah, energy content and nutrient content than the, the pure sorghum stover uh, that would otherwise be fed. And in this, and sorry, in this table, you can see then the, the average characteristics of um, high quality and lower quality uh, feed blocks. Now, the important statistic I think that you need to look at is this one, uh, where it shows that the dry matter intake per kilogram of uh, live weight cow can be increased to up to 3.6%, which uh, would mean that the milk potential could be increased to about 17 kilograms per day. So that, that looks like a quite uh, optimistic um, yeah, projection. Now, what would that mean in terms of feed and water requirements? So we'll have a look at um, two future scenarios. Um, in, and we will compare those with the current scenario, uh, which is here on the left. Um, the current scenario of low milk productivity in which we need about 100 billion um, cubic meters of water. Now, um, of course, the future scenarios, they take into account an increased demand for milk. And uh, projections are that that demand would more than double by the year 2020. So those two scenarios, what do they uh, entail? Well, the first one entails a moderate increase in productivity to about five liters per day, which would mean that we would have to increase the total number of animals to about 90 million milk animals. In the second um, scenario, uh, we keep the total number of animals constant, and that would mean that we need to increase animal productivity to about six kilograms per day. Now, what does that mean in terms of the energy requirements? Well, uh, in both scenarios, we would need more energy, but in the second one, uh, a bit less than in the first one. But also importantly, the, the proportion of uh, productive use of that energy is much higher in the second um, scenario. And then finally, how does that translate into feed and water requirements? Well, we see that in both scenarios we would need more feed, but in the second scenario we would actually need less water than in the current situation. And that is because we took into account the, um, the increase in um, in the proportion of crop residues in the diet, which have a higher feed water productivity. And so I think this table tells us that we can actually be quite uh, optimistic in terms of potential improvements in milk water productivity, uh, which would make it possible to, um, to meet rising demands without, without further increasing um, the water use in the country. So that brings us to uh, my last slide, um, in which I'll, I'll try to conclude what we've been talking about. Um, I think the, the livestock water productivity concept is a, is a useful concept to help us identify entry points um, for improvement. And I think um, it can be illustrated as follows. So livestock water productivity is calculated uh, from information on water flows on the one hand, and livestock products and services on the other hand. And those two building blocks, they are linked to one another by the feed that is produced by depleting water, 
and that contains energy from which the animals can then produce their, their products and services. And so those four building blocks, they are linked by one another um, through various um, factors, which are mentioned here, and we can probably think of more, but those include soil, crop, and rangeland management, um, issues related to feed management, and issues related to animal husbandry, herd composition, and livestock activities. And so it's by tweaking these different factors that we can actually influence um, livestock water productivity. And I think we've shown um, by, by looking at these three case studies that depending on the situation, those factors can actually become uh, entry points for improvement. So um, I think this, this um, summarizes what I've been talking about for the last 30 minutes or so, and so I'd like to leave it at that, and thank you for your attention. Any questions? You've had some of the details, but what is uh, the, the absolute gap between milk production and, say, a U.S. domestic dairy versus uh, what, we're, what you're seeing in India per cow? Per, uh, well, I think so. So the average uh, for India was about 3.6 liter per day per animal. Um, I don't know what the figures are for the U.S. Um, I did, wow, that's a massive difference. Yeah. So it's 30. 30 liters per day per animal. So ten, tenfold difference. Thank you. Uh, Dave Stenberg, uh, University of Nebraska Extension educator. Uh, I'm impressed with all the information that you've gathered and the thoroughness of your studies uh, and some of your solutions. How is this implemented? How does this actually get down to the people that are going to need to do those uh, improvements? Yeah, very good question, thanks. Um, well, what we did was basically, uh, well, especially for the example that I showed from the Ethiopian Highlands, was an ex-ante assessment of what could work in these systems. And so we could identify potential solutions that would bring a change to the system. But as you rightly point out, it's very important to then bring those solutions to the actual uh, implementers, uh, and those can be of various sorts. I mean, you have to talk to, not only to the farmers, but also to, um, to NGOs, to the local policy makers, to, to different stakeholders in the system, and then, and then um, discuss with them and engage with them um, to, to, well, to identify which of those solutions you then want to try out in the field, in, in the local conditions, because then, you will only find what really works and what, and what doesn't. And then from learning together about what can work and what not, I think that's then when you, when you can go to an, a second phase where you can try to disseminate those solutions to a wider group of, of farmers. Hello, uh, my name is Pratej Jagannath and I'm from Cornell University. And I've actually worked in India in dairy industry. Uh, I just uh, wanted to know if you have calculated the water use in the fodder and feed plus the water that the animal consumes because what I understand is that a normal crossbreed between Holliston and normal um, native breed, they consume about 50 liters of uh, 
uh, water a day, day per day, and a cycle is about 1,800 liters of milk per animal. That's what I understand about a cross-breed cow. And the problem with India is that most of the milk production happens in the semi-arid region rather than uh, in a tropical region where we have native breeds mostly. So how, what is your calculation basis? That's what I want, want to understand. Thank you. So did I understand it well that you're asking about the amount of water that yes. the animals drink? Yes. Plus water, because when you are producing water and feed, then also you're putting water. And that is also, uh, that can be calculated for water use. What do you think about that? Yeah, so, so the water that we accounted for in these calculations is only the water that is um, evapotranspired by the feed that is then um, taken in by the animals. So we didn't take into account the animal drinking water um, simply because it's, um, it's, a, it's a rather small fraction of the total water use in, um, in livestock production systems and also because it's not very variable. I mean it varies with temperature and with the type of animal but um, compared to the variation you see in feed water productivity, it's a minor, uh, minor component. Yeah, two questions along the same line. The first one is how was the amount of water used to produce feed was calculated? And the second, was there an attempt to calculate the cost of production and to have what is the fraction of that cost that is related to water as okay. input for producing whatever produce that you're talking about, milk or, or, or meat or whatever it is. Yeah, okay. So how was the water consumption calculated? So what we, so what we do when we start these studies, we, we try to understand what are the different feed sources um, for, for a particular um, system. So inventorizing all the different feed sources and then for each of those feed sources, you have to calculate the um, evapotranspiration during the growing season of that feed source. So to calculate evapotranspiration, you need to have climate data, you need to have soil data, you need to know how much these, uh, how these crops grow, how much, well, how much they, they transpire. So you can do that in various ways. You can do that in a rather simple approach, uh, but you, you can actually go quite detailed and use, and use crop models, for example, to calculate that. So there's, there's different ways. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we have to go into the details right well, here. I, my impression is that it's very much an estimate uh, based no, on models, because uh, it's my area of work. That's why I'm asking these questions. You know, there are many ways to determine the amount of water used. Yeah, sure. Produced. I agree with that. But how, that's why I asked, was it, an, because apparently it's just an estimate no, rather than not. the it's actual not. water used by crop, by, because yeah. it's okay. quite difficult to determine the amount of water that is actually used to produce these crops. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, uh, um, I can assure you that determining the water use of the different feed sources is the, is the major chunk of work in, in these things. It's not an easy, and, and we didn't do it like that, right? We, we really, can. but I don't think this is the venue to, I think we can talk later, because we would, I don't think everyone is interested in that.
So the second speaker, or the last speaker actually in this session, is Jerry Valesky. Um, Jerry is professor of agronomy and horticulture, and also extension range and forage specialist here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He is headquartered, his office and his uh, work site is actually in North Platte, Nebraska, which is uh, about a little over 200 miles west of here at the West Central Research and Extension Center. Jerry, welcome. All right. Thank you, Deb. I'd like to thank the Water for Food uh, Conference uh, Committee for inviting me here today. I was asked to be a little bit more focused in terms of the um, Central Plains region and more specifically focus on the, uh, the management of those grasslands. And when we're talking about the, the, the grasslands of the Central Plains, and I guess because drought is in the title, I'm kind of obliged to include one of the drought monitor maps, which we've seen several of them during this past conference. And, and these maps, of course, uh, in the ag sector and pretty much on a weekly basis are probably the most viewed and presented uh, images out there. One that I think is a little, little bit more telling when it comes to the livestock impacts in drought is this one here, where we're looking at uh, the darker, thicker red outline um, indicating the uh, areas that were affected by some level of drought. And then the various shades of green um, uh, indicating the uh, major and minor livestock producing areas. And of course, uh, in the Central Plains, you can see that that's a pretty significant area. And if we look at the Great Plains ecoregions uh, more specifically, about 44% of those areas are, are grasslands, grazing lands. And that 44% has been a declining number over the, the, the last number of years, particularly because of the conversion of grasslands to cropland, as well as some other uh, encroachment factors as well. And of the ecosystem services of these Great Plains, Great Plains grasslands, of course, the livestock production by far is number one. And in terms of the, the entire United States, about 58% of the all cattle and calf population is in this Great Plains region, a, a quite a significant number. That 89.3 million value there has been declining uh, here in, in recent years, but still, and I think as was pointed out in the earlier present presentation, the, the red meat production has at least been static or slightly increasing. Now, we were talking about that uh, grassland, that rain-fed grassland and water and livestock uh, production linkage. Uh, one of the key elements, of course, is that relationship between precipitation and grassland production. And of course, it's that production that allows us to certain levels of stocking rates or grazing animal carrying capacity. Not to be overlooked, I don't think, is that livestock water and whether we're talking groundwater, uh, rivers and streams, uh, reservoirs, very important and well. And often we consider that livestock water is one of the most important or limiting factors when it comes to development of effective rotational grazing systems. And it is those grazing management systems or strategies, if you will, that we um, desire to have to use because of their improved efficiency and sustainability in harvesting those grasslands. Now, another big challenge grazing managers face is just a tremendous amount of annual 
variability in forage or herbage production on those grasslands. Here in this example here from Nebraska Sandhills, um, we've got a period of going back to 1999 of the annual herbage production. And you can see a, a threefold um, range over those, uh, that period of years in terms of the amount of production that we do see. Now, when we talk about stocking rates or carrying capacity on grasslands or pasture lands, we really have to remember that that is dealing with the, uh, the numbers of animals that you have out there per unit of land area for a specific or defined period of time. And so basically, the stocking rate carrying capacity is a target or it's in, has to be in sync somewhere fairly close to being in sync with that annual productivity. And so as you can see, you know, many years it's really a moving target from, from too little to too much. And of course, with the rain-fed grasslands, the precipitation is uh, a, a key factor in those annual productivity. And then we must also keep in mind that it's uh, very specific in terms of the timing of when that rainfall occurs or falls. In the uh, Sandhills system or example here, dealing with primarily a C4 or warm season plant community, we've seen that the, the monthly totals during May, June, and July have the most correlation or relationship with that annual herbage or forage productivity. And when you put that herbage production on your left and that three-month period precipitation graph on your right, you can see somewhat of a, a relationship or correlation there. Not the best, but uh, it's uh, as, as, as close as we can get. In other Great Plains ecoregion here in eastern uh, uh, Wyoming, for example, dealing more with the C3 or cool season native um, mixed grass community, that April and May precipitation actually has a pretty strong relationship, a correlation with the productivity or standing crop that's been observed at, uh, and that type of uh, ecosystem. Now, overall, when it comes to the grazing management of these grasslands and what the manager, the rancher must do, it's really all about balancing that forage supply, that being his different sources of forage, the pastures, the hay, hay crop residues, with the animal numbers. The, the different classifications of livestock that he might have in his livestock enterprise. As far as the, the grassland plants response to drought, I think it can be broken down really into two areas. First, whether we're talking about the effects of drought on the individual plant, the individual plant bases, by that I mean its individual growth and its physiology, but also we have to keep in mind the effect of drought on the more of the, the plant or landscape basis, okay? Um, obviously, of course, some of those factors listed here that reduced above ground and, and, and root growth, I do want to point out, is often overlooked in our grassland uh, systems. Oftentimes, we're dealing with a perennial plant system, and something we like to talk about is, it's often overlooked, is that root growth. On an annual basis, we generally have an equal amount of root growth taking place as we do above ground growth. So that's a significant contribution there. Um, in 2012, for example, where we had the severe drought, um, 
we saw a lot of plant dormancy, and that dormancy of those grasses really is a self-protection mechanism. I mean, they just completely or flat out ran of water and had to go dormant and, and hopefully wait for the next growing season or two before they begin to uh, uh, come back and, and regrow. Something that uh, I think is very important in our grassland management is uh, the, the one effect, and that being the, how it affects reproduction of these perennial grasses. The top one there talks about uh, the re 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 reduced formation of buds that will produce next year and future year's tillers. Again, keeping in mind that these are perennial grasses that we're dealing with, and, and for the most part, the majority of their reproduction comes from vegetative means rather than the production of seed. Um, you know, on the landscape side of things, of course, uh, the third one there about the changes in plant community composition, also very important. And then similar to what we heard from the cropping people in terms of the hydrological impacts on residue and litter. In grasslands too, that litter and residue is a very important in, in terms of the, the, water, the water cycle. Drought, of course, is a stress to our grassland plants. And then likewise, grazing, particularly when it's done improperly or, or uh, mismanaged, is a stress. And then certainly we know that combining those two stresses can certainly or more rapidly affect the degradation and, and overall health of those grassland plant communities. Likewise, I mean, there's a big difference between a single year of drought and multiple or consecutive years of drought. And so here, just another take-home message I, I like to emphasize with some of the producers and clientele I work with that when we do go into these multiple-year droughts, that just the, of utmost importance, they really need to be at the top of their game in their management, grazing management decisions. And overall, if we look at our grassland plant community succession, on the left, we have driving variables that force things to the right, or we might used to use the terms range condition or a higher or excellent range condition, but more so now we use the ecological um, status or state. But with those variables on the left, such as the above average rainfall, the successional tendency is to move towards a direction where we have late or higher seral stages in those plant communities. Then on the right side, Pushing things backward could be drought or in excessive grazing pressure. So it's trying to find a happy medium or balance in keeping those plant communities where we want them. Overall, I think you know, a goal for, for most ranchers should be just to maintain or have diverse and healthy grasslands that has resistance to periodic drought because um, drought does happen. Our grasslands, particularly our, our native or natural grasslands, they've seen drought before. They've evolved and developed over thousands of years with periodic drought. And within that, you know, we want these grassland communities to have at least adequate or some level of vigor and productivity during drought. We do need that forage resource. And then also very important is how quickly they can recover after drought. So that's very important, should not be overlooked. Well, one of our tools that we have in terms of managing these grasslands are what we call grazing systems or grazing methods, grazing strategies, and that's simply what they are. They are a tool, but I do want to emphasize that still, overall, 
no matter what type of grazing method is used, stocking rate is still the primary management factor, okay? Doesn't matter if you have what you think is the most perfectly designed strategy in your grazing, if it's not used at the proper stocking rate, it's very likely to fail. A uh, little bit of history on uh, the grazing strategies, grazing systems. Here in the U.S., uh, going back to the, the pre-1900s, and when we had the development of uh, barbed wire and fences to start controlling livestock, we had uh, primarily continuous grazing. And then over the years, um, different people came out with different uh, suggestions or ideas and concepts related to grazing management. Taking us up, say, into 2000, one of the more recent things we've been doing some work with and hearing about is what's called the ultra-high stock density use or mob grazing or even now called regenerative grazing, using the grazing animals to regenerate or improve these grassland landscapes. Interestingly enough, though, you can look in anywhere in the United States, any state you might go into, uh, you would find any one of these or could find any one of these types of systems or strategies being used. Now, some of the key elements with the strategies, particularly uh, that we feel and we've done research that can show that they are beneficial because it was what they can do as far as allowing us to manipulate grazing distribution. When we can improve distribution, we can become more efficient at the harvesting of that forage out there. Controlling the timing of grazing, also very important. We can alter the stocking density. When I talk about stocking density, I'm just talking about not rate, but just density, the number of head per unit area of land at any given time. And then, of course, affect that grassland or rangeland health. And in particularly, if we're using systems with multiple paddocks or pastures, these things here, too, are other or factors can become very important so for some managers. They are really keen on things like the length of a grazing period, the length of a rest or non-use period for that individual paddock or pressure. Um, in research here in Nebraska and throughout the Great Plains for that matter, they've done things with the timing of grazing. And a, a key principle here we like to talk about is just being very important to, on an annual basis uh, for a given pasture unit, we would like to see that the, the time of grazing be varied each year. In other words, do not graze the same pasture or paddock at the same time or period each year. So mixing that up certainly a, a beneficial in terms of the grassland health and vigor. The other thing I mentioned in there, altering stocking density um, on the left or in the upper upper left here, you know, we have an example of a, of a low stocking density approach where we might uh, we might have that in a season-long or a continuous type of grazing system versus a, a very high stocking density or mob grazing approach. Animals in there in a relatively small area for a short period of time. In one of our research uh, studies, we are looking at uh, some of the high stock density grazing approach. In our case here, we're having the equivalent of 285 head of yearlings per acre on a very small paddock. But again, you have to keep in mind that it's for a very short time. They're moved to a new paddock twice a day, okay? And some people get the misimpression in that with that term or title of, of mob grazing that we're going out there and totally 
utilizing and, and destroying and consuming everything out there, but that's not the case. This is still the same stocking rate that we would use in a different type of system. But the period and duration of time that they're out there is very short. In, in, the, uh, in, in the research that we're doing, we're looking at a number of different response variables, uh, particularly focusing on what's happening in the soil as well as within that plant community. And, and again, I mentioned the, the, the goals or the objectives with this, uh, for the most part, are being to try to make a significant impact on the soil, the nutrient cycling, uh, and those, as well as the plant community. Seeing if we can see increases in, in herbage production, improvement of the soil quality. Um, in our example here, I mentioned how we uh, have a very short half-day grazing periods, then they're moved to a new paddock, and that's only done once per year. So that individual's tiny paddock has a 364 and a half days of non-use or rest. The uh, level of utilization, for example, in, in our approach here that we're using, we're still only consuming 30%, the animals are consuming only 30% of the total available herbage out there and then we see 50 to 60% of that herbage trampled back down onto the ground, okay? And then trampled significantly on the ground. And then only about 10 or 20% left standing vertically, okay? One of the things about all of our grassland, most all of our grassland ecosystems is that a lot of times the response to our different grazing treatments is very slow. It takes multiple years before we start to see significant impacts and oftentimes um, events like a severe drought or, or exceptionally wet periods, the responses and changes we see in those plant communities is quicker than when we apply different grazing treatments, even grazing treatments like this. On a more drier upland site, again, this just been an example of some of the management studies that we work with. We have a series of uh, different grazing treatments there, both under moderate and heavy stocking, date, uh, stocking rates, excuse me. And then in this case, we have more moderate levels of stocking density. But a big difference in these systems is the, uh, the, the grazing days per season or per year that each of these systems might use. And so we can go from 100 days of, 150 days of continuous use in that continuous approach or set stocked approach to as little of, of three days per use per year when we have a, a fairly intensive rotation system like this. We also have some other new project, this one beginning this year, a combined uh, outreach or extension as well as some applied research in there, I guess, and this came about in light of a drought, but looking at that concept of, of the plant diversity in these, in these uh, natural grassland uh, communities and seeing how, what type of resilience we have with varying levels of uh, diversity in these grassland uh, plant communities. So this particular work, again, is just beginning uh, here this season. Um, to close, I'd just like to mention a few things about some of our extension, our outreach efforts. Uh, Dr. Hibbert yesterday spent a, a fair amount of time talking about UNECLO extension and the proactivity and response to the the, the drought here in the state. Uh, one particular project that uh, I wanted to just mention within that whole set uh, has to do with drought preparedness, and we called it uh, managing drought risk on the ranch. And so 
with the drought preparedness, we were talking with and working with ranchers and producers on how to develop a drought plan. So putting a well-developed plan together that would allow them, first of all, in terms of their grassland resource, to lessen the impact of drought on that, but for the overall financial stability of that ranch enterprise, those people that have drought plans, those both those two type or two um, uh, factors can be markedly improved. And, and, and another benefit that I've noticed with that in terms of, of this planning process is that uh, certainly when, when that event or you're planning for that event earlier, for example, on the left there when times are good, you certainly have what, of course, much more time to be doing that versus waiting till you're to the point of that uh, significant drought in place. And then by waiting too long, the stress side of that wedge markedly increases. And that's pretty significant, I think, both from the, from the producer's uh, physical and mental health. And that sometimes is an issue that's overlooked when we have some of these uh, significant events like drought or floods or whatever. So those with uh, well-developed drought plans, like I said, those producers, uh, that's a comment that they made. It's been much less stressful on them. One of the components, and there's a number of components in this planning process, deals with uh, that precipitation and herbage production relationship here. And this is uh, just an example I put together and with the issue of what we call critical or trigger dates but the left column over there, we look at precipitation, cumulative precipitation for different periods as we progress into a growing season. Um, and then on the middle column, I have it listed as stocking rate impact, but it could be uh, herbage production or forage production. And then on the third column is the management action. So a, a manager should have a portfolio full of different management actions that he could employ given a certain scenario. So for example, if we look at that April 1st date, uh, obviously if we follow the line where it was an average precipitation, no or none action would be needed, but perhaps maybe that dormant season of the winter period was dry and that might call for a 10% reduction in stocking rate. So then, of course, he would employ some management action. And there's a number of uh, different ones of these that are out there. Uh, both from very simple on a pencil and paper form to a number of online tools that can be used just to help in that grazing forage planning part of the whole ranch, uh, uh, the, the ranch plan operation. So with that, I'd just like to again thank you for the opportunity to speak here today. And we do, again, we'll have some time for questions. Definitely, with uh, Nebraska, in Nebraska, for example, with last year's drought, and something that's pretty much inevitable in, in drought situations is that overgrazing or excessive grazing does take place, and we did see a lot of that. Um, um, one beneficial, not necessarily beneficial, but one thing that saved or helped out a lot of 
our producers last year was that because the previous three or four years were so good in terms of growing season precipitation, there was an abundance of residual or carryover grass. And so a lot of that 2011-10 grass got consumed and utilized last year. And so, yeah, I think early on last year we did see the, the, the good producers and good managers start making decisions early in the season, season as they, start, they started to see the drought intensify. Uh, and, and most commonly things like uh, uh, significant culling of their herds, early weaning, um, and, and doing whatever they could to, to uh, get through the rest of the year. Yes. I'm John Gilley, and I'm with uh, USDA Agricultural Research Service. Jerry, what, what, are, what are your recommendations for this upcoming year? Pardon? What are your recommendations for this, this upcoming year? The oh, next, this, this upcoming season? year. Have that drought plan. The recommendations for this upcoming year have the drought plan in place and are ready. Um, you know, we do anticipate, even if we were to have uh, average seasonal precipitation, that our grassland production will be down just because of the impact physiological impact of last year's drought on those grasses. Um, a lot of people have, have made uh, a, additional uh, culling decisions in terms of uh, reducing their herd size and de you know, depopulating. Some will be looking at alternative feed sources and maintaining their uh, cattle or prime cow herd in a, in a dry lot or confined feeding situation. And then again, um, another very common uh, recommendation on uh, during or even after drought is here in the spring delaying initial turnout date in, as far as the use of the summer pastures and by that that allows at least those grasses some time to begin recovering. Yeah, Mace Hack uh, with the Nature Conservancy. So uh, just taking in the spirit of resilience taking this sort of to the next scale above, above the ranch to look at, at the sandhills as a system we have a problem that is shared elsewhere around the world in range systems where we're having more and more tree encroachment, particularly with red cedars. And I'm just curious what your thoughts might be with respect to uh, management strategies on the ranch that could potentially address this larger scale issue of sort of conversion of our grasslands to a, to a wood, more of a woodland system. Do you have any thoughts on right. that? Right. Particularly in Nebraska, you know, throughout the Great Plains, the eastern red cedar encroachment of a very significant prime uh, issue. And that in part due to the uh, uh, reduced use, well, first of all, the, the encroachment of red cedars because of the lack of fire, particularly wildfire or prescribed burning. We are starting to see more and more prescribed burning to try to address some of that issue. But really, I think it has to fall upon the shoulders of many individual landowners um, that have uh, eastern red cedar tree encroachment problems to, to begin to, uh, to address that particular problem. Interestingly enough, though, some, uh, a drought like last year did have an impact. We saw the death and loss of some of the eastern red cedar trees, but certainly not enough. So, sorry, just to follow up, have you seen any evidence of grazing strategy helping in, in, in that regard? That was my question. No, uh, and, and the work has been done in that with that eastern red cedar tree problem. Um, it, it is the type of species that, regardless of the um, grazing strategy, have very little impact on eastern red cedars. The case of the very high stock density could potentially, if you were in an area that had some of the smaller trees, and as you could see, the 
the trampling effect may have some potential in, in reducing them. But that's a very difficult, intensive approach to grazing on a, on a large landscape scale. Yeah, um, Ken Kassman again, UNL. Jerry, did the presence of the ethanol industry in Nebraska, second largest ethanol producer, therefore lots of distillers grains, did that add any resilience to the, the um, um, range systems in terms of having a little more access to high concentrate, high quality feed? In other words, did ranchers take advantage oh, of that resource? Absolutely, and uh, the, the comment about the, the ethanol byproducts, the, the distiller's grains are very important here in Nebraska that would, went a long way to reduce some of the pressure on those grassland ecosystems, the grazing pressure on those grassland systems. Using those uh, byproducts with uh, lower quality haze or, or corn stover residue, mixing those together, and that's going to be continued to use here this spring and into the summer as, as uh, less cattle are put out on pasture. Larry Dedick, uh, farmer, dryland farmer, east of or west of Lincoln. Uh, if you could elaborate a little bit more on one aspect of the mob grazing, I'll role play an anti-animal agriculture person here. Okay, okay? use only using thirty percent of that grass and wasting seventy percent. Address well, that. That's seventy percent <laughs> that's not wasted, and again, most of that seventy percent was trampled, beat down onto the ground. The, the concept behind it is uh, a soil building, and, and it's in, in, in increasing the, the rate of nutrient cycling, and with that, theoretically, we should have increased productivity and growth of those grasses in the long haul. And, and along with that, the improvement in soil, uh, uh, the, uh, the increases in orga organic matter, very, very central to, to that happening. And so um, the other thing, that 30% utilization value, and again, our consumption, excuse me, 30% consumption, that amount of, of the percentage going into or consumed by the animal, that's a pretty typical uh, amount or rate that we see in, in other grazing uh, approaches as well. And uh, that, that, that's, that, that is not consumed over time in, in a more conventional system, of course, does break down. It does become litter and, and residual on the ground. And so it's just part of uh, a planned grazing approach that over time we know has worked well. Too heavy of consumption of those grasses, removing too much will um, ultimately affect their vigor and health. They'll decline. All right. Yeah. So I just want to thank you all for attending the session uh, once again. And I especially want to acknowledge uh, Mats for identifying some of these speakers and putting together the topics. I think we've told a, they've told a nice story here about um, the role of livestock and water, not only in Nebraska and the United States and Europe uh, and around the world. So thank you, Mats, for, for your vision and putting that all together. Um, and as I, th I think you've heard, uh, we've answered some of the questions. We've provided some perhaps some interesting talking points and some, some uh, comments 
bounce back to some of the some of the media outcries where I think we've livestock production has gotten some negative press. Um, but certainly we haven't answered all of the questions, and I, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, not only in research, but in, in getting this information to producers and farmers and ranchers and, and the general public as well. So um, perhaps this will uh, this topic will be continued again next year, maybe more in the whole systems approach as we look at agroecosystems, sustainable intensification, and so forth. So thanks again for attending, and I'm sure the speakers will be around and be happy to, to talk with you throughout the day.